This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton-Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and Tahani. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. Hey gang, if you're in the Ohio area, I will be at the Culinary Vegetable Institute at the renowned Chef's Garden on Saturday, June 22nd. Legendary chefs David Waltuck and Claudia Fleming will be joining the Institute's chef Jamie Simpson to create a 1980s-themed dinner based on my book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. There will be a talk. There will be a cocktail reception. To learn more or purchase tickets, visit culinaryvegetableinstitute.com, click on the reserve link, and look for the event title, Lecture Series, Totally 80s, with Andrew Friedman. Hope to see you there. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. For me, it wasn't a choice. That's I just that's what I needed to do. And I think yeah. that is what draws you in the kitchen. Actually, what keeps you in a kitchen. I mean, you can't work in a kitchen and go through everything, you know, that a kitchen goes through and not love what you're doing. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect and, and it's always romantic. That's not for sure. But yeah. there are some days that are really tough and you're like kind of in the trenches yes. with the rest of the cooks yes. and you have to make it happen. Yes. And you're like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? But yeah. you know, it's that thing that that's in your core that makes you want to be there. That is Della Gossett, pastry chef of Spago Restaurant one of several chefs and industry figures we spoke to at the L.A. Chef Conference in Santa Monica a few weeks ago, our guests for this special report of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I'm back with Caitlin Friedman. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. We're not really great. Well. <laughs> it's been a trying week. It's been a hard week, but we're okay. Yeah, I traveled. I was home for a few days. Then you traveled. Yeah, on Memorial Day. On Memorial Day, yeah. and you're already back. I know. I'm it in was, this haze. You're right? in a haze. Yeah. I'm. It's crazy. I'm getting ready to leave again in a week and a half. But Caitlin, uh, yes. we're going to keep all this short. You and I have somewhere to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show is late this week. Mm-hmm. I want to say that it's because of the Memorial Day holiday. In fact, I did say that on Instagram the other day. <laughs> but the truth is, I've just like all my circuits blew out. Like I had too many. The holiday came and went and I had five interviews to edit for this special. And... Um, you I was know, out of town. you were out of town, and Tuesday 
morning, it was like everyone who had been checked out for like four or five days for the holiday weekend wanted a piece of me. And it just like blew my circuits. It was all I could do to like tread water, to be honest. I think it happens. Anyway, Jeet Paul, our engineer, is going to get this episode up on Thursday or Friday. I'm going to be transmitting it to the studio Thursday morning, right after we do this intro. And uh, anyway, I went to the LA Chef Conference. It was the second annual LA Chef Conference. It is part of the Los Angeles Times Food Bowl. It's orchestrated by my new buddy, newish buddy, Brad Metzger. You met Brad. I met him in Los Angeles. Yeah, you and I were in Santa Monica for a big birthday of yours a year ago last week. And we were just walking around, mm-hmm. and uh, I had never met him at that point. Right. And he spot recognized <laughs> us from like our Instagram pictures and accosted us. Just no, kidding, you Brad. Do you not remember? What? He came up to me and said, Good morning, Mrs. Tokeland. Oh, and that's I right. Totally which is my blog name. Out. Right. I was like, Who are you? Yes. Why are you calling Miss, me Mrs. Tokeland? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Brad and his team uh, of Brad Metzger. Restaurant Solutions, it's, he has a, um, what would you call a hospitality recruiting f- firm or company or agent, I don't know the, that ni- the noun he likes. Um, Brad's also a alumnus of the restaurant industry. He you know worked in restaurants since age 15, basically, and then shifted over and started doing this very successfully, and now he puts on this event, which is a ton of work. I mean, he and his, he and his team of elves... <laughs> You know, his regular team, this gets added on to like what they do. They're all hospitality veterans, so they're kind of built for it. But it was still an enormous undertaking. It was it was in um, three different venues um, in, a, in, a, in Santa Monica, uh, Arclight Theaters and the Gourmandise Cooking School. And they had one other space. Uh, and I'm sorry, there were several theaters in the Arclight Cinema that they were using. And then not quite next door, but almost next door on the on the second level of this place was um, uh, the Gourmandise Cooking School where they had chef demos going on. So there were multiple things going on all the time. It was crazy. The lineup was amazing. Um, I did an interview with Brad the day before the conference started, just minutes before the welcome reception. And then uh, I, I snagged a bunch of interviews at the conference. The last interview was supposed to be with Brooke Williamson. And her panel ran late. My panel ran late. Then I did a book signing. It had been a very long day. And she came out of her panel. We looked at each other. And I was like, rain check. And we, we ended up meeting at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Oh, yeah. So see, that interview was not on site. There. I do love the market. Yeah. Um, anyway, Caitlin, we're going to keep this a little short. But um, you're just back. Your trip that we just mentioned was actually to and from L.A. I love it there. Yeah. You were you were torturing me with pictures of your feet in the rooftop pool of your hotel. Okay, but I need to explain. I was actually working. It was just a perfect place to work. Yes, you were reading yes. things in advance of meetings. Yes. Yes, with it, your feet in a pool at the roof, yeah. on the rooftop of the London <laughs> like Hotel. 75 degrees sunny weather. Yes, that's, you know, that's, how, that's why we've all come around on Los Angeles. I know. It is a quality of life upgrade, I have to say. Do you know what I realized recently? I get texts and messages and stuff from listeners to the show, Some of many of whom have become friends of mine because of the show. Brad Metzger's one. My pal Jody Liano at the San Francisco Cooking School is another. And I had this realization the other day. I hear from people in New York who listen to the show that they listen as, uh, like, on their subway commute to work, you know, things like that. But... Um, uh, 
my California listeners, the, the messages I get are, I was out running, you know, this morning in Santa Monica listening to the show, or I was out for my morning walk with my dog listening to the show. Oh, okay. But you're not hearing from the people that are sitting in traffic listening to your show. Oh, no. They, once in a the while they say, you know, this really helps my commute. But they're still sitting in an air-conditioned car. It's sunny. It's sunny. All these, every single one of the interviews, with the exception of Brad, which we did in my hotel room, because it was the only quiet place we could find at the hotel, um, all these interviews are outside. Mm -hmm. And you can hear the sunshine in the interviews. I mean, I honestly was listening back to them. You can hear it. You can hear the, 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 the breeze. You know, you can feel the climate. I really believe that. Uh, it's such a factor in how everybody out there lives their lives, and f- not everybody. There's unhealthy people everywhere, but <laughs> how so many of these people, like you know, that farmers market, even you know, it's it's. I talked to Della Gossett about this in our interview. It is a year-round market. Yeah, you know. Anyway, let's get to it. First interview is with Brad himself. Conducted again in my room. Uh, if people follow social media, then you already will know or follow me on social media that um, I was presented with something very flattering late in the interview. It was a total surprise. Uh, I'm still a bit chuffed, as my British friends would say, about it. Um, but Brad, you know, created this hospitality recruitment company back in the aughts and has done very well with it. He's got quite a sizable team now. I met several of them at this event. And we talk about uh, the, uh, the LA Chef Conference and how it started. We talk about some industry issues. We talk about the art and craft of recruiting. Um, I briefly got to meet his wife, Linda, there. She doesn't say much in the interview, but she, is, it, she was present and does talk a little bit. Um, and I think that's all I need to say about it. What do you think? I think that's great. You always say you think it's great. <laughs> What am I you just say? That's terrible. I would do a redo on the intro. Anyway, I think it sounds fine too. Okay, so with that, here's my first interview of this. Uh, again, this is a long episode, guys, but I hope you all like these and you just listen to them maybe one at a time. Uh, most of these interviews, I don't think any of them clock in at over 30 minutes. So um, hopefully it's a, a fun anthology for you all. Probably the last one for a while. I'm not going to be at any conferences for a while. Um, anyway, here you go. My interview with Brad Metzger conducted in my hotel room at the Viceroy Santa Monica a few weeks ago. Here you go. We are in my hotel room overlooking the ocean for the, well, this is technically the second, do we say annual? Annual. LA Chef Conference. This year it went up a couple of notches because you became part of the LA Times Food Bowl, which for people who don't know is what? It was last year, too. Oh, last year, too? I didn't know that. Yeah. So how did it go so big so fast? Last year went so well. Yeah. And the response was so amazing. And basically, the opportunity allowed us to move it from IPIC yeah. over to Gorman D's Cooking School. Right. And Arclight. Yeah. Two Cinemas. venues. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So... And everybody wanted in because they heard good things. That's how these things Correct. grow. Yeah. yeah. This is the third year of the LA Times Food Bowl. Yeah. The first year we did a one-session um, seminar, Labor Crisis Summit. I see. That was three years ago. Okay. Two years ago we did LA Chef Conference. You mean last year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. LA Chef Conference over at IPIC with Sherry Yard. We had three sessions. Yeah. And now 
here this year, 13 sessions, yeah. a four-part restaurant workshop, yep. eight cooking demos, yep. six chefs doing lunch, much okay. bigger. So as we sit here, all this is about to go down. When this airs, it will have all just gone down. Um, I hope you'll, I don't know, sight unseen. I'm taking it on faith that I'm going to say from the future, I hope you'll do it again. Thank you. I know it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work you, to put I on think, a conference like this. I think with the exception of the hotel confirmation, I only ever heard from you or one other person in your organization. Maybe Erica, yes. Sarah. You know, I'll tell you something, though. Putting this event on has been so enlightening. It's given me an incredible appreciation, again, for the industry and the people in the industry. Yeah. Because so many people came together to make this happen. You know, I own a hospitality recruiting firm. We're not a event production yep. company. So between my wife, Linda, my Who's staff, sitting here. Linda's here. Yes. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, she t between, between Linda, my whole team at BMRS, yeah. and the incredible friends in the industry and our sponsors, yeah. they really, really came through. It's been amazing yeah. to see people support this event, even like yourself, you put me in touch with potential sponsors that yeah, worked yeah, yeah. out. Yes. And it, it's been enlightening. Well, this is why I like to, I often can, to my, I guess to my detriment, because it doesn't really give me a home, but I more identify with people who I'm friends with who are in the hospitality business than I do people who write for a living. Mm -hmm. I think other writers and some editors probably have an issue with that. Others think it gives me great access, but it, it is sort of, but it is what draws me to your to that your old industry, the one that you're on the tangent of now and the one that I observe now, right? Yeah. That's pretty, yeah. Do people who work for you tend to come out of hospitality? Yes, all of us. Basically they all, all of us. Okay, so this is why you guys can put a conference on because, yeah. you know, that's the, that's the can-do business. Right, but even in 16 years of having my company, we've never had anyone in the recruiting come from a recruiting background as opposed one. to hospitality they've all come from hospitality or for example i have two young ladies right now um tatum and sadie that are right out of college okay and i've i've had other um, employees come right out of school or even have their first job be with us yeah and i've just found that with the right training and the right culture it's really about personality and ethics um and willingness to learn and absorb and just being super sharp. And yeah. we tend to teach them our ways of doing things, especially with regard to um, the ethics of recruiting. And it, it just has worked. What are the ethics of recruiting? Oh, boy. In, uh, you know, in, the, in, yeah, in a fraction big. of the time you have. No, no. no this, but what are the ethics? Because I don't even know how many people out there. I don't want to say whom. There's someone else in your business. And their name came up recently in a conversation. And someone said, well, you know, they only can work for the really big companies because those are the only ones who can afford to pay, you know, the, whatever you, I guess, commission or finder's fee. I don't know what you call yeah. it. Fee, but yeah. How does, for people, I mean, I would say probably the majority of people out there don't use a firm like yours. So how does, how does it work? I mean, well, in, in, in broad strokes without, I mean, specifics. let's talk about the ethics first. Sure. Okay? The ethics are super, super important. You have ethics that you have to treat candidates with and ethics you have to treat clients with and they're different for example with candidates we have an obligation to communicate with them in a timely way all right let's say a candidate goes on an interview right yeah we we need to tell them 
Is there a next step? Is there not a next step? Within a reasonable time. If they're not going to be hired, we don't just blow them off. We have respect for them and we communicate with them because mm-hmm. you know what? It's not about this one position. It's about a relationship and having a reputation in the industry and being respectful of that person as a human being. Let's say you have a client, a repeat client, who you... And I just want to say to everyone out there, this is not based on Brad having told me a story or something. This is a hypothetical I have wondered about. I wonder about this when I pair up friends of mine with projects, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you know the client, meaning the employer, to be a pain in the ass, to be an unreasonable person. Now, in the hospitality business, there are a lot of dysfunctional relationships. Absolutely. It could be that you could say that to a certain chef and they would go, they would know what you meant. And you could say, I think they need someone like you who's going to push back, right? It could, is, yeah. that, is that an ethic? Is That's that a, part of the ethics? Would you feel the need to, in a constructive way, reveal something like that? Yes, we are a re- representative of the client, meaning the restaurant who's looking for the yes. staff member. Yes. So, first of all, to, to take your example, if they were that bad, we wouldn't be working with them in the first place. Okay. Them. Right. So, if you were talking to a potential employee, Let's generously call the kind of thing I'm describing a foible, <laughs> okay, about the employer, right? You might say this person's a little whatever. They're, yes, they're, yes. they're a little, I don't, it doesn't even need to be that harsh, right? They're Difficult. a little artsy or even they're a little spontaneous. Or, or you may micro, have, you may have three specials thrown at you when this person walks in the door at 5 p.m. Yeah. You know, you down for that, right? right. You're not really talking smack about the employer. That to me would be to facilitate a good match. Correct. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's our job to understand the client and to represent that client to the candidate. Yes. At the end of the day, if we misrepresent the client to the candidate, the candidate gets the job and they get into a situation where they're not a good fit for or they're not expecting something and they leave, it's not good for us. Nobody. For either party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. You used to work in restaurants for how long? Starting at what age? Well- one of my my first real job was as a bread baker and prep cook at Spago on Sunset when I was about seventeen years old. Okay. Even before that, I was working at humongous Hollywood premieres as a catering busboy. Oh, really? Yeah. And well, I was like, I wasn't like even what driving. Kind of premieres? Like, can you, oh my gosh! Like what would in be Hollywood, a big movie that you big uh, big movie? I don't remember what which movie, but there were like parking lots in Hollywood where they would you know have tents and have like yeah. two thousand people. Yeah, yeah. This was the hate, and you would work those. I would work those. I would have a little was that boat fun time. or was it hell? Like, it was amazing. You get, you get, it was fun. It was exciting. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Yeah. First of all, I was paid probably 15, 17 bucks an hour. Back then for a 15-year-old kid who was being dropped off by his mom, that was great money. Right. I don't want to date you, but when you say back then, 15 years old, you're talking, what, 80s? Yeah. Okay. I'm 51 right now. But it was incredible. I mean, yeah. I, the, the people, the, the most gorgeous people were there, right? Yeah. Me and my friend, I did it with my best friend, Sean, who's still my best friend. Okay. And... The people, the food. At the end of these parties, we got to eat like kings. But I fell in love with this business early on. And mm-hmm. then and then Spago, it was always... You were like in the thick of hot, the intersection of hospitality and entertainment. Yes. Because even Spago is entertainment, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The open kitchen. All of it. I was there mainly in the daytime, but I would stick around at night sometimes. And I remember Wolfgang, you know, had me like you know, clean these baby strawberries or, or whatever, little tasks like that. Cause I was, I was very inexperienced, Yeah. but I would stick around and just say, Hey, I'll do anything you want. And it was just amazing to be there and to see the crowd and to see the food, the energy Spago at that time was just outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I never was there back then, back in the day. I can only imagine. 
It's great. Yeah. And for but me, that's but for a kid, right? Like and also the yeah. and then the opening the premieres, like that's really I mean, that's like yeah. that's like it is kind of like if you're in your industry, that's like that is like being on set. Yeah. No, I fell in love with this business very early on. My parents, yeah. my mom Ellen took me to Europe. Um and you know we we ate in incredible incredible restaurants yes and saw that brand of service which was very different yes um, it was more of profession as opposed to what was going on in L A with people their profession was maybe being an actor yes so it, it was different um, but I fell in love with the hospitality side the food side everything so what finally made you want to shift gears take the personal knowledge and sort of uh, intuition you had developed, right? And apply it to what you do now. What was that? What was the, the light bulb, like the light bulb moment for that? It was, it wasn't my idea. Um, I had worked in restaurants, including Spago. I also worked for Wolfgang at Granita. I worked at Chaya. Can you Gr tell people what Granita was? Granita was one of Wolfgang's restaurants in Malibu. It's not there any longer, but it was uh, an amazing seafood Mediterranean spot. Um, largely forgotten. One of the earlier things they tried to do not long after um, Spago and Chinois. Worked at the Grill on the Alley, Chaya, Vincenti. I worked at this rest, this hotel when it opened 17 years ago. In the, the restaurant. Vi the Viceroy, yeah. yeah. I, I helped open that restaurant with Tim Goodell at the time, which had just won, he had just won a Food & Wine magazine Best New Chef. Okay. So I had been working in restaurants. I did everything from the kitchen, management, a lot of serving, I uh, worked with Chadwick, with Ben Ford, okay. um, Ruth Chris Steakhouse, San Francisco Hilton. I put in my time. And a woman named Joan Luther, who's no longer with us, she was a really, really big and respected restaurant publicist. Okay. And I got to know her from working in restaurants and through my family. And at a certain point, she said, Brad, you've been working in restaurants for so long. Um, I get asked all the time if I know employees for all these clients of mine, she said, with your knowledge and your relationships with all of these chefs who are now opening their own restaurants these days, because I had worked with Josiah yeah. and Ben Ford and all these guys, we grew up together. Um, so she said, you'd be perfect. You know, why don't you do some recruiting? You know, you'd be great for this. You have such a great base of knowledge for all these positions and all these, you know, uh, chefs opening yeah. restaurants. And um, I, it came out of the blue, you know, you had never thought about doing anything. Never like thought that. about that. Had you paired up friends with jobs? Yes, all the time. Okay. But it was mainly like busboys, servers. It was like someone that. needed someone in a pinch. Yeah. You, you knew yeah. someone who a place had just closed. Right. You sent them over. It wasn't like a long selection process. Yeah, because a server, you know, yeah. they may want a second job or a Yeah, you weren't pairing chefs up with right. like but a busser yeah. would always want a second job. You weren't right. right. You weren't placing executive no, chefs. No, 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 no. Yes. No. Or even so high-level sues. Not at all. Yeah. So I thought about it for a while. I let it ruminate for a week or two. I said, Joan, this is an amazing idea. I, I think this would be great. She goes, great. You know what? Why don't you just do it casually? Um, I'll help you out. I mean, a bunch of my clients need the help. You know. So I basically set up shop out of my son's bedroom at a rent control apartment in Santa Monica. Um, and it really just started to slowly grow and grow. And you know, my, one of my very first clients was Susan Feniger. Okay. Okay. Who we still work with today. I'm mm -hmm. very close with her. She's going to be here. She's here at the at the conference. Yep. She's on your panel. It just sort of grew, you know. Uh -huh. And then at the uh, time, when did you start? 2013, 2003. What? Late okay. 2003. Not okay. Six, yeah. Yeah. Six, coming up on sixteen. And um, 
I was still working at the grill on the alley at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had placed, actually me at the time, because it wasn't we back then. I'm used to saying we. But uh, we, I placed Eric Klein, who had come from Spago, uh-huh. at Maple Drive. Okay. And I had closed that deal in the restroom of the grill on the alley in between serving cop salads to people like Nancy Reagan and Sil- Sly Stallone and all these celebrities yeah. and agents. Yeah. It's a, the grill on the alley is a very famous power lunch place. Okay. Um, one of the best waiter jobs in LA. Amazing. Um, so when I closed that deal and then he went on to get huge acclaim, he got like a three-star review from Irene Verbilla in the LA times. Okay. He got food and wine, best new chef. He and I went to Aspen, because that's where they celebrate all the food and wine best new chefs. That's when I said, okay, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move out of the bedroom, my son's bedroom. I'm going to hire an employee. Uh-huh. And I was in touch with my good friend, Rick Christopher, okay. who I had worked with in restaurants. Okay. He was getting married. We were on the phone. I told him what was going on. I'm moving into an office. He said, and I told him I, was, I should probably hire a full-time employee. I'm going to start looking. He's like, you should talk to Sarah, his wife. Talk to Sarah. Immediately we connected. And what was Sarah doing at the time? Sarah was working at Chin Chin as a server. Chin Chin on Sunset. On Sunset, sure. Yeah. Ate there. I used to yeah. eat there when I was in the in the industry, the other industry. And she was acting too. Yeah. Okay. Um, we hit it off. Yeah. And she's still with me today as my senior yes. director of culinary yeah. recruitment at BMRS. That's great. Yeah. That's great. And then you sort of put the band together. Yep, slowly hired. You know, we just slowly, slowly grew, you know? So it was me and Sarah. Then we hired, you know, another person. And it just grew basically to the team that we are. It's me plus plus seven now. How many are, are there? I mean, in New York, there's... And I know you do business like everywhere. But in New York, there's like a couple of people that mm-hmm. people mention, you yeah, know, who yeah, are based yeah. there. There's very few. Is this still a pretty small industry? No, I think there's a lot of recruiting firms and a lot of recruiters. No, but I mean who specifically do what you do. A lot of them do not specialize in the chef-driven world, the boutique restaurants, mm-hmm. the small groups. Right. Because it really takes an understanding right. of the, the nuances of the business. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, that's sort of that question I was asking yeah, before. Yeah. yeah. Really, sometimes when we get new clients... They don't understand why we're spending an hour with them on the phone or visiting them and eating at their restaurants and ha- asking all these questions. And it's, a, it's clear. We want to know. We are a reflection of you guys. When we're talking to these candidates, we really want to know what the job is, what you're looking for, what your business is like, so we can accurately reflect yeah, the position Yeah, no, I get that. Them. No, it's like, um, right. And in the restaurant industry, for people who are listening who aren't in that business... You know, it's not like the, it really isn't, even with what you just described, anything like the corporate world where people might be interviewing for like like six months, literally just going layer and layer and layer through a company. There's not those kind of, uh, they're not fail saves because sometimes things still don't work out, but that's not how it works in the restaurant business. It's usually very timely uh, need that someone has to fill or often. It's often a very big position that needs to be filled in a fraction of the time I just described. Well, it's even more time-sensitive these days because there's such a high demand for good people. Yes. That if you're interviewing a candidate and he or she is a really good candidate, if you wait days or weeks, they are accepting another offer. It's like jumping on a New York City apartment it's rental. insane. Yeah. 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 It's you gotten just, you got to jump. So time-sensitive uh-huh. over the last year or two. Okay, so the obvious things to me 
that somebody who does what you do would need to be able to evaluate well. The two obvious things are the the food piece. Yes. And the management piece. Right. What am I not thinking of? It's that you, you know might what? try to check references for or suss oh, out. References. And, no, no, no. In terms of what other what's what other What's the makeup of somebody you might be looking to place in a chef position that may not be obvious to someone who doesn't do that? If there is something beyond the food and the, and the management piece. Yeah, it's, it's about team assembly, and okay. it's about the structure of the management team at the existing operation. Okay. okay. So really understanding, if it's a general manager, okay, mm-hmm. what support do they have? What are the financials? Where are they done? Is there, a, is there an in-house bookkeeper? Is there, who does the payroll? Right. right. What's the support? Do you want this person to be more of a major D training floor right. presence? Yes. Or do you do they need to know the financials, the budgeting, the forecasting, the payroll, right. the purchasing, yes. the food costs? Yes. All of this stuff. Because every operation is different. And the all of those things need to be handled in a restaurant, but they can be put together in so many different ways. Okay. So it's about knowing all of those nuances and knowing what the specific need for the position is so you can look for the talent and the qualifications in the person to fit that operation. Okay. So you're saying it's always a different list. Always different. Of what you're looking for. Yes. Let's talk about people in the kitchen side. Okay. Is there something when, and maybe this is another, like there's no one size fits all, but is there one thing or a, a short list of things that you see that's hard, maybe even hard to describe easily right now, right? Like, is there something that you'll... Will you observe things that might seem negligible to a casual observer, and it'll give you some sort of insight into the, the person where all of a sudden, like, you know, something just clicks in your head, and you're like, that's the, I just know it right now. Like, I still... I have to go prove it now, but I know this is going to be the one. I mean... Can you just, like, is it just like almost an animal thing at this sh- point? If a chef has... has- reached a point in his career that they're sort of going through the motions and there isn't a lot of that passion. Yeah. And even the hospitality vibe, yeah. it's not a good sign at all. And you can you when you interview someone, you can sort of see that. So it's more likely that something will strike you that'll take someone off your candidate list than something that'll make you realize instantly it's, they're the one. It's both. I mean, yeah. you, when you see an exceptional person and you you talk to them and there's that you know that spark and that light and that passion. You to, you I sort of know other ways. To me, in a cook, like a chef, like when I see someone who's like, I, I have no problem with anyone who isn't, but they tend to be very kind of like clean cut, you know, tight in appearance. I don't mean they don't have tattoos and all that, but they're yeah. they're they're not unkempt. They seem to have a list in their head that takes them through the next three days, and you just get this vibe like they're on top of. Everything. Right. Yeah. Everything. I just was editing on my flight in today an interview with Marcus Glocker uh, from Batard and, and Augustine in New York. And he was saying that, like, chefs that he came up with taught him that even when you got to the position of executive chef, you need to go through everybody's fridge. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, you need to mm-hmm. know every detail of your kitchen, even yeah. though you have people in charge of those individual stations, right? Yeah. I feel like the kind of person who does these kind of things, you can kind of, even I feel yeah, like I can yeah. spot them right away. I don't know if they're nice people. I don't know if they're not, if they're screamers. You know what? There's so many elements that go, in, go into making a great chef now. Yeah. And if you don't have 
most of them or all of them, you can only go so far. Even you know? now, even with the demand. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. you have to have the organizational skills. Yeah. You have to have the creativity. Yeah. You have to have the people skills yeah. now more than ever. Yeah. And you have to have a financial mind, too, because the fin- the financials and the food cost and the budgeting and the labor, yes. it's essential. Now, if your food is absolutely amazing, but you cannot work with people and y- your costs are out of line, it's over. Yeah. You know, I love, okay, I'll give you an example. Hillstone. Okay. okay? The food is good. Well, I don't know if people it's know solid. what that is because the, na- the Hillstone is also Houston's. It's a it's a steak, basically a steakhouse. Chain seems too casual for what it well, is. They have they have a few different concepts. It's very straightforward cuisine. You know, it's not really chef driven, but it's good. And they run an amazing business, and they're very successful. No, I know, but I'm saying the thing I said about the name was is they they are they a client of yours. No. Okay, so my understanding is, and I will check this before I air the episode, is that if you have multi-units of uh, the same concept, above a certain number or if you're in a certain number of states, you have to, by law, disclose the calorie counts and all that, right? So Houston's and Hillstone's are essentially the same thing, but they're not. And that my understanding is that's actually the reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Although Bandera is a slightly different than yeah, but those first Hills, Hillstone Houston. and Houston's are basically the same. Yeah. They got the artichoke yeah. spinach dip right. and the which some, is really good. Some locations have sushi, <laughs> some don't. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a cul-de-sac. <laughs> but the point of that was what cause I just thought of something that I would think maybe sometimes you have to evaluate somebody's um, two things: marketing prowess. Insta, you know, social media followers. Are they good on camera? Is this someone who could go on the Today Show, you know, or be on YouTube? Uh, and also, is this someone who knows how to, at the very least, not have unforced errors in the media or on social media? Does this ever come up in hiring? Not so much. The other things that I mentioned, the yeah. creativity, the working with people, yeah. the organization, the cost controls, that stuff you have to have. The other stuff, the the marketability and all that, you know, there's plenty of awkward chefs that are not good on Instagram that are highly successful and highly acclaimed, you know? Yeah, I'm not disputing that. I right. just know that it's also more competitive than ever right now. So I just wonder if people would want promotability, let's call it, to be a piece of the puzzle. Oh, it's definitely a piece. Okay. But so a lot of times, especially these days, the younger chefs are way too focused on that piece and they're not good on the other things yeah. and they don't think the other things are important. What else are we talking about today? Tell I think me. It's time to talk about you. What? Yeah. What are I think you it's talk time about to talk me? about you. What are you going to talk about me? So, are pe- is this about to turn into a surprise party? It's a surprise. Are people yeah. about to come the in? The conference got a little crazy, and I was running around all over the place. Yeah. And we never had the whole 550 attendees in one spot. So I wasn't able to give this to you, but I do have something for you. Oh my gosh! It's a little token from the LA Chef Conference for wow. you. Can you open that? I'm getting Linda? a gift on air. It is an award. Linda hasn't said like hello, and now she's like opening my gift box. What did you do? It's the LA Chef Conference 2019. What did you do? Award. Oh my god. Oh my god. We'll take contra- this. Will be our picture. Contributions to our industry. Oh my God, look at this. Ah, oh, it's a microphone. It's a little silver microphone with my name. 
I just want to say. Sweet. Oh, it actually says LA Chef Conference 2019 Award for Contributions to Our Industry. Wow. What you do for our industry, oh, Andrew, you're embarrass me. is Go amazing. Ahead. Thank I you. I read your comments on your, your, uh, you know, your channel, Instagram and stuff, everything. Yeah. And what you do for the people in the industry and the young cooks who listen to you while they're prepping and, and everybody at all levels in the industry is amazing. And thank you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for coming I'm out. Gonna get, what to are they called? I don't even know how to say it. Verklempt? How do you say it? You think I should know? I dropped out of Hebrew school. Um, you are a mensch. Thank you, Brad. I can't let you say any more because I don't want to get any more comments about how I talk about myself too much. Um, but thank you very much. That's very nice of you. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming all the way from New York to be an important part of the I'm LHS excited. To, I'm excited that I was able to be here for it. Yes. What do you have sitting here, by the way? Is this a script? Is this no, for something just, else? Is this for tomorrow? A, you know, in case you had specific questions oh, okay. about the conference and That's what right. went down and no, everything. No, I can't believe you got this little microphone for this. This is so great. Where's that going to go in your office? It'll go in my office. It'll go on my desk. What, I have a huge... Would, de- I have a larger desk than a writer needs. I mean, would, a writer doesn't really need a desk. You just need a MacBook Air. What, what would Caitlin say about that? Caitlin. Oh, she'll think this was so sweet. Thank you, Brad. You're welcome. What else do you want to talk about? Where are you from? You're obviously from California. Yeah, I grew up here starting when I was about five years old. Okay. Yeah. And in Southern... Yes, Beverly Hills. Okay. When you were... what You described discovering the industry very young, right? Yes. But before that, did you ever have any notion you would do... I mean, you're the generation that you are of was one of the, you know, that was still a point in time where it was like, you, you know, you come from a nice family and you come home one day and say, you know what, guys, I want to be a cook. That usually doesn't go over too well. Or even I want to work in the restaurant business. Not like it does now. This wasn't, yeah. we weren't watching people open restaurants on, you know, network well, television shows. So what happened was I was always in love and fascinated by food, even before I started food. working. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always. My mom was an amazing cook. We had a housekeeper named Elvia who was an incredible cook. So what was, background? Oh, Can I, what, like, culturally? Mexico. She was, okay. Yeah. Um, Did she cook that stuff for you? Yeah, and just amazing just and whatever. stuff that my mom yeah. would ask her to make. Like out of a cookbook or something? Just my mom, things my mom would put together and then okay. teach her, and then she yeah. would do it. and then and, she would do it, and she yeah. would just, like, Elvia was, it. like, my mom's sous chef. Uh-huh. And then my mom would come and finish. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, I was always into it. So when I went to college, I went to UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. Worked at El Encanto Hotel in Santa Barbara. Worked at the UCSB Faculty Club. But so, what did you go to college for? My major was sociology. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was sort of floating around. and You didn't you know, know what you were going to do. I loved sociology. Yeah. Well, it makes um, total sense with what you ended up doing, right? Yeah, it, it did. It did. Um, and my parents were always extreme. My family, very, very supportive of me being in the industry, doing whatever I want. However, I did sort of always know that I wasn't going to be a chef. I didn't have that creativity and it, I always really knew that I didn't want to become a chef. But when I graduated from college, I was accepted to Cornell for hotel restaurant management, mm. the master's program. Okay. My parents were going to help me. Um, I was accepted. Yeah. I had never gone to visit there yeah. before I was accepted. So yeah. right after, upon graduation or close, close to graduating, I went out there. I visited Cornell. And some, something told me, Brad, do not go here. It's not the right move for you. There were a bunch of little kids running around in suits and ties. I was coming from UC Santa Barbara. Right. I just didn't feel it. And yeah. you know what? 
thank goodness I didn't because I, who knows where I'd be. An that might have driven you out of the business. Or I'd be an executive with Hilton right now, which doesn't fit me. This fits me okay. perfectly. Um, okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. The sociology yeah. piece is very interesting. Yeah. All right. What, I feel bad that Linda's just sitting here. No, it's, it's fun to hear him talk about his story and to tell it to you. Um, we've, we've, you know, been over it many, many times over the years. And sure. I, I have to laugh because, you know, him even saying he's from Beverly Hills when we first met, he didn't want to tell me that he ha- was, you know, raised in Beverly Hills. He told me, oh, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm like, yeah, but where in Los Angeles? And so he's never wanted to have, you know, any airs or appearances sure. of, you know, having been you know, very privileged. And he's always been such a hard worker. Ever since I've known him, he's always been doing at least three different things. He has a passion for reggae. So he's a writer or was a writer. You're a writer for an online uh, blog for um, reggae magazine or what is it? Reggaeville. And, uh, you know, he, he was a waiter. He always had two or three different Mm -hmm. gigs that were going Uh on at the same time. So he really just has always been somebody who needed to have his mind busy and to be busy and to be doing things that he thought, you know, were important. Uh Uh-huh. So. And where uh, are you from? Me. Oh, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Minnesota. Oh, you are. Okay. Can you hear it in the accent? I couldn't place the (laughs) accent to save my life. I would not have guessed Minnesota. Oh, no, from Minnesota. And can I ask how you guys met? Is Is that a tellable story? Oh, my gosh. So his version differs from my version. Oh, great. So I don't know. Well, I don't know. Is this going to, is this off the record? No, his, no, his best friend, Sean, that he talked about yeah. earlier, introduced us. We okay. had a friend in common. And so yeah. we were out at a house party, and Brad was just getting off from work, and he came out to the house party, and we just hit it off. We talked like all night long. It was so much fun. And then at the time, I had a boyfriend, so it was, uh, all fun and friends, but <laughs> it was all fun and friends. It was, all, was... it was all fun and friends until somebody loses their. <laughs> she she withheld that information from me all night. We had been talking about everything. Yeah, everything. She neglected to mention. And then that the sun one came fact. out, and it was like, yeah. Well, the sun did come out because we were at an and it was like it was like a club in right. downtown LA. And instead of finding out you were in love with a vampire, you found out you were in love with someone. But. Boyfriend and married is two different things. She wouldn't give me her phone number. However, oh, I see. However, okay. she had told me where she worked. Okay, Ethan Allen Furniture Store in okay. West LA. All right. So that coming week, of course, I had to make an appearance. Yeah, sure. At Ethan Allen, and the rest is history. The rest is history. All right. Well, I think we're coming up on our preordained time frame. What do you do? How are you so calm? You know what? This you're like a producer this week. Yeah. Because yeah. when I used to work for a producer, they used to say, like, when, you know, if the producer's done their job, then when you're at the moment where you're about to say action for the first time, you're just like, everyone's got their jobs my, and you get, you're just there to put out fires. My team. God forbid. Sarah, Jackie, Erica, Tatum, yeah. Sadie, yeah. Kelly, Margot have been absolutely amazing and they're so organized. Kelly had a spreadsheet made about where all the bottles of water and the cases of water were going throughout the conference. That's good. The spreadsheet. Yes. So it's been incredible. 
She probably worked for Steve Hansen in the previous job. That's it. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for coming. Thanks for flying me out here to, uh, of course. you know, be part of this this event. Thank you for what you do for the industry, oh, Andrew. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. All right, you guys. Thanks. Let's go mingle. Let's go do it. Okay. And next up, Caitlin, is Della Gossett. Della is, as many people are in this industry, a career changer. Came to the professional kitchen a bit on the late side. Made up for lost time. Spent several years with Charlie Trotter, the late Charlie Trotter in Chicago. Currently is with Wolfgang Puck's Spago in Beverly Hills. Um, never met her before. Couldn't have been nicer by email. Uh, she's, it's, a, it's a really interesting job she has. It's, it's more multifaceted than I would have thought because of the number of the types of events that come through and are connected to that restaurant. Um, you would probably be a pastry chef if you were going to be a chef Never of any thought kind. thought about that for a minute. For a minute. But I think you more thought you might open a bakery. Yeah, it was a, you're right. I don't think you would have wanted to cook for service. No, I don't think so. Yeah. But if I had a choice, yeah. that would probably be what I would do. Anyway, in all honesty, we're going to make these intros a little quick because A, I have to deliver the show today, and B, um, we have to get to an appointment. Um, we're dealing with a parenting issue this week. and we have be better. We have to get to an appointment at the school. So... Um, with that, here is pastry chef Della Gossett of Spago Restaurant in Beverly Hills. If I'm not mistaken, you came here from Chicago? I did. I, I came here. I've been with uh, Chef Wolfgang for about six years now yeah. at Spago. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you, I mean, we're sitting outside. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a spectacular day. It's so beautiful. You said to me, I said, you've been here about six years. Yes. And you said, I, I, you said, yes, I love it. Do you ever... I mean, does this ever become? You came here, you know, you weren't, you didn't come here as like a kid, or you know, in your early professional days, you came here as a fully formed adult from right. a place that's very cold yes. in the winter. <laughs> and uh, do you ever take it for granted, or does it still just always seem noteworthy? It's inspiring. Inspiring. It's inspiring. How do you mean that? Well, I think actually one of the reasons why I moved to California was because of my admiration for the farmer's market. I mean, mm. even when I was in Chicago, I would go to the Green City Market almost every Wednesday, pick up all my produce, and then take it back to the restaurant. And I could only do that so many months out of the year. Right, yeah. You know, Same in New York, where I am, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I would come out to California to vacation, and I remember going to the farmer's market and just being awestruck by the produce. Are we talking the 3rd Street Market? Are we talking the Santa Monica Wednesday Market? The Santa Monica Wednesday Market. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's like a pilgrim. I'm, go- I'm, I'm leaving here Wednesday this week. We're talking on a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. I'm taking someone who's never been to oh. the market. We're going to have, have coffee and whatever we can scrounge around to eat. and Yeah, but they've never been there, and I can't wait. Because it is... I think it might be the best one in the country. I, I, th- I think it is. I mean... Which is saying something at this point. It really is. I mean, I'm spoiled now because yeah. now um, I taste, I've tasted delicious strawberries. They're yeah. so sweet. You know, they're yeah. not white inside. They actually have color and, and peaches and nectarines that um, I've never tasted before. Just so naturally sweet, sweet right off the tree. I mean, sure. it's pretty amazing. That's great. So when you say inspiring, do you mean all of the whole package, the weather, the produce? Oh, the, the whole package. The whole package. I mean, <laughs> this, it, I mean, I feel guilty talking to my family back in Chicago yeah. because they're like, oh, it's 
it's April and it's snowing here, and I'm like, oh wow, that I'm sorry, but it's sunny yeah. and beautiful, and I just went to the beach today. And, yes. You know, tomorrow I might drive out to the desert or whatever. I mean, it's it's pretty great. There's a lot of things to do. Yeah. Can we just say somebody just went by on a like a, a what normally would be something that you cart produce around or something, and they were using it as a skateboard. Did you see it? <laughs> I didn't see it. Yeah, that. yeah, that was that That's was pretty cool. a person writing that. Yeah, you don't see that in Chicago. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so, okay, you. I, I'm always interested in, um, and correct me if I'm wrong about how you go about it. But okay. the, we haven't had that many pastry chefs on the show. But what always interests me is, I, I think, you know, certainly for the last several decades, right? Mm-hmm. Pastry chefs are. Is seen as and are as sort of creative, um, distinct, as sh- uh, you know, a, a savory chef, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like part of the job, which this is, this is always really interesting to me to try to square this, is that you like you spent years with Charlie Trotter, yes, and you're now at Spago, yes, just two very different types of restaurants, yes, you. I think in the most cases, one of the jobs of a pastry chef is to be able to adapt to do something in your own style, but to morph into something that would make sense at the end of, you always come last in, in the sequence. <laughs> yes, in, in the sequence. sequence. So right. what you do has to be sort of a suitable, it's like you're writing like a coda for someone else's piece of music. Does that make sense? Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Is that what it feels like? Well, I mean, it's... I mean, going into a fine dining restaurant and, for example, working within the tasting menu, you do have to kind of follow the lead of what the chef is doing. You don't want to repeat ingredients or things like that, and you kind of want to stay in the same vibe. Right. So it's not like, okay, you have this beautiful, eloquent meal, and then you end with a piece of pie. Yes. Right. So... you know, you could do something like that, meaning maybe take some of the elements of a delicious pie that's in season and change it to be more fine dining. Like riff on it. Like or, riff on yeah. it, exactly. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I've definitely been able... I think one of the most exciting parts of being a pastry chef is, or for me, is to be able to constantly change and grow. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was at Charlie Trotter's, I was there for almost 10 years. Yeah. And it was all fine dining tasting menu. Mm-hmm. And then I came to work for Chef Wolfgang. And boy, there is so, not only are there tasting menus, but there's, there's a f- lunch there, which we never did at Charlie Trotter's. Yep. There's a, a banquet style, there's special events, there's lots of offsite events, there's birthday cakes, wedding cakes, uh, all types of things. And it's been really exciting for me. I mean, So I, this all falls under your auspices and direction? It does. Wow. Um, and did you have to learn new, uh, did you have to pick up new things that you hadn't ever done? Or had you pretty much done at least a little of all of this that you just listed? Oh, no, I mean... Like, I, had you done wedding cakes before? No, no. Never, never. And that's fancy. a very specific thing. Yeah, never wedding cakes. I mean, even just to roll fondant and to put it on a cake is, yes. is really... It's, you have to be very skilled. And I try my best. Yeah. Um, but I also have an amazing team at work. And so if it's something that, like a fondant cake, that I'm not 100% comfortable doing, then I have I try to hire amazing people that will yeah. be able to do something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's funny. I remember when, I, we got, when I, my wife and I got married, I didn't know that. And she said, we have to find someone who does wedding cakes. And I 
I said, well, just let's go to a bakery. She said, no, no, no. And she gave me the whole fondant talk. Right. And yeah, this was in 2000 when everything was, I don't know what it's like now, but everything was fondant for uh, weddings. Yeah, now it's, I mean, it's it's changed. I mean, whatever yeah. you, whatever the flow of Instagram is, okay. that's, that's where it goes. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it's been, it's very exciting to be a pastry chef. I mean, I, I I am never bored. Mm-hmm. You know, Charlie used to say, you must never become complacent. Mm-hmm. And that is true. If, you, if that's the way you want to live your life yes. to lead an exciting pastry chef life, that's yes. what you should do. Learn something about bread. Learn something about chocolate, sculpture, uh, wedding cakes, uh, how to make a proper pie, how to yeah. make a proper cookie, how to make something super delicious. I mean, yeah. it's just... It all falls under that realm if that's what you want to do as a pastry chef. Yeah. So you can sort of, and I assume you can sort of even just follow, um, how do I put this? You could be a little spontaneous. Like you can within the confines of one job. Like when you're a young cook, right, and you're yeah. figuring out where to go next, mm-hmm. you, you, you oftentimes have to go to a new job to try to do a new thing or try something in a different style. Yes. But it sounds like what you're saying in the job you're in now, you could read about something or get just kind of a little tug towards something, and you could find a way to fit that into one of these channels you're describing. Absolutely. I always say to people, you know, my job is not black and white. There are lots of gray areas, mm-hmm. and there are lots of things that get thrown at me all the time. Right. I mean, I have to be able to be open and open to spontaneity for sure. Yeah. There are always things that are changing. Yeah. Um, and for some people, that could be really stressful. Yes. But you kind of have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you never know when someone might want a birthday cake in an hour with specific things on it. I right. Mean, and you just have to make it happen. Yeah. I, I tell everyone, like, underneath my chef jacket, I have a shirt that says, make it happen. Yeah. You or you, well, it's the year. I mean, I've had a number of chefs say to me that you all are in the, you know, the business of saying yes. Absolutely. Yes, chef. Yeah, that's we chef. Say. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And not just to chefs. I mean, that's kind of the, the instinct. Exactly. How did you um, settle on pastry when you were coming up? Was it always where you were headed? Were you were you going to be more of a generalist and then gravitated toward it? What 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 sort of drew you to that side of the the force? Well, I actually when I started um, culinary school in Chicago, mm-hmm. I didn't really I wasn't even really interested in pastry, although I loved eating it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually have a background in more savory cooking mm-hmm. to begin with. But my first job fine dining job was at Trio in Evanston. This is with Gail Gand? Yes, with Gail Gand. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of walked in the door saying, I'll do anything you want. I will be the head potato scrubber. I really don't care. I just want to be in a kitchen. Yeah. So um, I guess it just, the pastry career kind of morphed there. Um, they needed someone in Garmage first uh, in pastry where I just kind of scoop sorbets all day mm-hmm. at dinner. And then... Um, it, then they said, oh, we need someone in the bake shop. We need someone in the bread department. So then I started baking bread. And so that kind of morphed into pastry. And I just found myself, because I have an art background, mm. that uh, I was really drawn into the magic of pastry. What kind of art were you practicing? Uh, well, I have a degree in elementary and high school art education. So okay. I have I dabbled in a lot of things from ceramics to jewelry to yeah. things like painting. But um, my minor was in uh, drawing and painting. Okay. Interesting. So that translates to some extent Absolutely. or applies. Yes. What did you... Um, 
Did I read right? Did you teach pastry as well? I did. Uh, in between uh, working with Chef Trotter mm-hmm. and Chef Wolfgang, I was a chef instructor at the French Pastry School. Okay. So I thought that was a good way to tie in my educational aspect to what I did, teaching mm-hmm. and my love of pastry. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Did you enjoy doing that? It was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. How long I, did you spend doing it? I was there for almost three years. Okay, that's a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, Did um, you think about making staying there for good? Did that ever cross your mind, or were you always going to get back into the restaurant side? I that was that was kind of a place where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Mm-hmm. I actually I didn't think I'd ever want to be in a restaurant right. again, but uh, you know it just you drew me it. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was. A, an amazing experience. It's an amazing pastry school, the French pastry school. Yeah. I learned so much there in such a short amount of time. Um, and I was able to help with the um, with some competitions, mm-hmm. which was really fun, something I'd never thought I'd ever do. Um, so it was a great experience. Did you? Can you speak to the competition piece for just a minute? Because it's so interesting to me. I just had this conversation with Kelly Fields was on. Okay. And we were talking, and and to be honest, we were talking about the di- like differences in sort of the psychology. It's all j- overgeneralizing, right? But between men and women. And I had written a book about the Boku's Door competition. Okay. And I made this comment that people assume that at least the American uh, effort is very sexist because there's almost never any women trying out to be on the team. And the truth is there just aren't that many women trying out to be on that team. Like, they're just not drawn to it the way guys are. That competition, mm-hmm. which is like a five-hour, very show-off-y, right? And, exactly. And even internationally, I've, I've been out to Lyon to see it. You barely even ever see any women commies in the competition. Mm-hmm. So when I was going over your bios, re- getting ready to talk to you, and I saw a competition in there, I was just curious to ask you about that. Like, what drew you to it? Did you enjoy it? Or was it your students who were competing? Uh, no, it wasn't my students. I worked with um, three amazing pastry chefs, uh, Chef Donald Russell, Josh Johnson, and um, Scott Green. Okay. And so we worked together for almost two years on the um, national pastry team, and then it went on to the world pastry wow. team. Wow. And I wasn't actually on the floor you know, making chocolate sculptures or sugar. I was kind of in the background. I was like the Comey. I was the one who was scaling the ingredients okay. and, um, you know, helping them maybe come up with a few flavor profiles and tasting and just being a huge support to them. I mean, yes. no one really understands unless they've been in a competition. Yes. How much work goes in it. I mean, into I the, pra- the practicing, the, the dry runs. Yeah, over and over and yeah. over again. I, I don't think I had... Um, a we- I rarely had weekends off for those two years. I mean, it was yeah. working at the school, teaching, and then maybe after work we'd go through competitions Got and talk it. about it. And then on the weekends we compete. So, Or not compete, but um, practice. You have spent, I mean, I would almost put Gail Gann for people who remember in this category, but mm-hmm. I would for sure put uh, Chef Trotter and Wolfgang Puck in this category. You went to work at two restaurants that when you got there were already sort of, I mean, you could use whatever word you want, legendary, iconic uh, institutions. Um, what does, is that something that's particularly appealing to you or was that a coincidence? And what's it like to go into a job at a place that has as much history as those two restaurants? 
Well, you know, I'm a career changer. So I didn't start until later in my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was already, already an elementary and high school art teacher at one point. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to make this career change, I am not messing around. Okay. So I just went to the top. So and for you, that's what it was about. It was about, it was, yeah. That's what it was about. I mean, it's like, that. that's what I'm going to go for. And, you know, I'm going to reach for the stars. And that's, okay. and that's where it was. And after doing lots of research and, you know, reading magazines and talking to people, you know, I decided I'm just going to walk in the door and I'm just going to, you know, my first job was at a Trio in Evanston. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just kind of walked in the door. Um, after, by the way, walking around the block five times, I didn't even have enough guts to walk in. This is when you went to ask for the job? This is when I went to go ask for the job. Yeah. I didn't I even know they had a job opening. Yeah, I, I think this is less, I mean, I know people still do it, but <laughs> it used to, not that long ago, the way you got into a kitchen is you showed up, if they served lunch, you showed up between lunch and dinner at the kitchen door. And Absolutely. you said, I will work for you. And often you said, I will work for you for free. Absolutely. And <laughs> a lot of great careers started that way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I still... That was the move. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely hired people. Sure. With their, at the back door, they had their knife kit in hand. And I said, okay, come on in and Show let's Show us talk. what you can do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you like... I mean, for me as an observer, that is such a... You know, this notion of like wandering the land with a knife kit and like <laughs> showing up. And I mean, I know people who went to plenty of people because I wrote that book who went to France and did that in France. And a lot of them didn't even speak French like that back when you really needed to go overseas to get that like almost like a finishing school piece. Exactly. You know, it, they did that over there not speaking the language. But I just find that so romantic. The idea that you can do like if you have the gumption. Right. Maybe you have to walk around the block a few times, <laughs> but if you're willing to put yourself out there like that, exactly. I mean, look where you are now. It's kind of amazing. Exactly. I, I just, for me, it wasn't a choice. That's, I just, that's what I needed to do. And I think yeah. that is what draws you in the kitchen and actually what keeps you in a kitchen. I mean, you can't work in a kitchen and go through everything, you know, that a kitchen goes through and not love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect and, and it's always romantic. That's not for sure. But yeah. there are some days that are really tough and you're like kind of in the trenches yes. with the rest of the cooks yes. and you have to make it happen. Yes. And you're like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? But yeah. you know, it's that thing that that's in your core that makes you want to be there. Yeah. What uh, difference is Chicago, big food city, LA, big huge food, food city. city. Mm -hmm. What's the difference for someone who came here you know, long enough ago to have a real sense of it here. Well, how's it different, the community? I don't know if there's a, a huge difference. You know, I, I just said to someone yesterday that um, it's amazing what a small world it is. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like there are similarities. I mm -hmm. mean, they're, it's, they're both big, huge food communities. There's a lot of culture. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different kinds of cuisine, which is really interesting tiny little neighborhoods that you can go to and eat the best pho or, eat, mm -hmm. you know, have the best tacos. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those are big similarities. And I don't know if there's a big difference other than, you know, the sunshine and the produce. <laughs> yeah, no, that, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So feel that part of it feels, that felt like an easy, that was mm -hmm. an easy transition it, for, for you. For me, it was an easy transition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just uh, tell me, at Spago, what, what is uh, something that you've put on the menu there that, kind of for you uh, sums up your style, your sensibility, what, what you do, or just a favorite thing of your own? Well, something that I've been dabbling in in the past couple of years is, um, you know, I'm always trying to find inspiration. 
And so um, one of the things that I'm inspired in is art mm -hmm. and actually fashion. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I have been dabbling in is being inspired by an artist. So one of the first um, desserts I did at Spago, uh, inspired by the artist series, is was Frank Gehry. Mm -hmm. So I kind of did a dessert that was architectural, almost in the style of the, the Disney um, building. And then I found a, um, an artist by the name Analia Saban. I just okay. have, she's an LA artist. Most of these are LA artists, by the way. I mean, LA is one of the, probably one of the hottest hubs for contemporary art mm -hmm. in the world. And so I found an artist, Analia Saban, and was very attracted to what she did and inspired. And so I created a dessert kind of around what one of her pieces. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the same with fashion. I mean, for a short time, I kind of dabbled with a Chicago designer when I was in Chicago. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't do any designing, but I was kind of like behind the scenes production sure. manager. And because I've always been interested in fashion as well. And so um, a huge inspirational fashion designer that I've, I've admired is Alexander McQueen. Mm -hmm. Because he broke sure. so many molds. Yeah. And so I have a dessert on the menu now that is inspired by Alexander McQueen. So those are things that I think really pull me in. Something that's not something that means something to me gives you a challenge it gives me a challenge yeah exactly. gives you a structure yeah yes now do you is, is there any identification of these as inspired by so-and-so or is that just your own little secret um, like on the menu does it indicate that at it all? does it, it does, does. In indicate on the menu okay and mm -hmm. have you had these artists come in and see what you've done with their inspiration uh, well I, ha I have met frank geary yeah. um and i have met Analia Saban for sure. And have they had these desserts? I'm not 100% sure about Frank Gehry, uh -huh. but Analia Saban for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. And was that you're smiling big when you say that? So oh, I assume she, that was a good experience yeah, for you? Yes. She's a, an amazingly sweet, humble person. So and she was touched by she it? She was, I, I believe so. Yes. And so um, that was really, that was like an out of body experience. I, mean, yeah. I couldn't believe that she actually came to the restaurant and I got to serve her the dessert. And I, That's you know, great. That was really cool. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, I know you have a talk soon. Um, thanks for doing this with me. Thank you. I'm Thank glad you we so got much. to meet. And uh, I've, I have to say, I don't usually confess this. Um, I have not been to the current Spago location. I've never eaten. I've been there. I've never eaten there. Well, so I'll, come on I'm going to come in and <laughs> maybe I'll just come in for dessert. No, I won't do that. I'll come in for a full meal, but I'll leave room for plenty of room for please dessert. Please leave room for dessert, <laughs> okay. or you'll get dessert first. Okay, <laughs> or I'll have dessert first. We'll start a new thing. Okay, right. great meeting you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And next up, Caitlin, is Michael Chimarutsky. I don't think you know him. He has Providence Restaurant in Los Angeles. Providence is easily the fanciest restaurant I've ever been to in L.A. It's not what most people think of as the kind of place you would go in Los Angeles, he and his, his partner Donato also have Connie and Ted's restaurant, a more casual place. I've been there. Oh, you've been there? Yep. I've not been it's there. It's really fun. Yeah. It's very near my hotel. But, you know, um, Michael, first of all, I, I say this in the interview, I, didn't, I wouldn't have known that he had been around as long as he had because like many Los Angelinos, he just looks so 
freaking healthy and happy and unburdened, even though he's running a very serious restaurant, as much as probably anybody I can think of, he is really happy the Michelin Guide is coming back because he's, I don't want to jinx anything, but he has a restaurant that is very much in the mold of great Michelin restaurants. Uh, but he makes, it's not what you think of when you think of LA dining. You know, you don't think of getting dressed up a little bit. You don't think of fancy, you know, necessarily fancy plating or, uh, but he, that's his orientation. That's all he's ever wanted to do. We talk about how he's made it work there. And I think he's made it work brilliantly. The Providence is just a spectacularly great restaurant on every level. Um, I would say more, except that I can't, or the show won't air till next week. So with that, my first ever chat with, oh, I sh- I'm sorry, I do have to say this. He just won after eight or nine nominations, one of those exquisite, exquisitely painful, you know, renomination things, you know, at the Beard Awards. He finally won Best Chef West. Aww. Yeah. Years ago, I remember Jeremiah Tower had a similar thing. I mean, it happens, but he finally got the award. And everybody was very happy for him, as was I. So he's still kind of basking in the glow of that. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And here is my conversation with Michael Chmerutsky. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So first of all, Mike, we, we barely know each other. Yeah. I had lunch years ago with some regulars, the, the famous oh, right. yeah. the Manny Ouellette Klausner. That's of a course. name that L.A. industry people will know. Yeah, of course. Uh, in the in like what do you call it the chef's room the chef's the, table yeah the chef's table which is basically in the kitchen separated by a glass right wall it's like a little fishbowl yeah um, I think that's the only time I'd ever met you yeah until we saw each other at the Beard Awards right and so I have to ask what was that I mean you nine time nominee so, yeah for best chef West well I think eight times for that but I also got nominated we got nominated uh, Providence dated for best new restaurant back in aha. Uh-huh. Oh six. Okay. Not, we were uh, notified by fax, so that'll tell you just how much time <laughs> passed. Okay. Yeah. That yeah, even, it was a long time. That ago. even seems like it was behind the times for 06. I know. Well, maybe it was, but, but I. But anyway. It, yeah. I don't know. Was Twitter around in two thousand six? I don't know if Twitter was, but you certainly like could have. You certainly could have gotten an email. Yeah, but it seems I don't think like um, if Twitter was around, I wasn't on it. Yeah. And I really didn't have much concept of what you know the Beard Awards at that point. I mean, yeah. I knew they existed and that kind of thing, but yeah, it was you know that was like something that happened in New York and you know right. And um, you know we certainly weren't expecting it, but I remember I was in the um, kitchen and I was cutting fish. Yeah. Um, and my wife came down with a piece of paper in her hand. She goes, "We've got a big problem." And I was like, "Oh shit!" Because in the restaurant world, that could yeah, mean so anything. many things. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then she showed it to me, and I had to read it like three times to figure out what exactly it was saying. But you know, right. I was pretty pleased. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, as one cool. would be. Yeah. So to finally win it, what I mean, where, what was the psychology of it? For you, because it was I hadn't it's been tough. to the awards since they moved to Chicago. Yeah, I mean, and I had forgotten the intensity. Like when people were winning, yeah. and like you know, howling, screaming, yeah. and it's it was pretty. And but to be denied that so many times and then right. finally have it, what was yeah, that moment was, like? It was pretty crazy. You know, I sat there. I kind of it was I, honestly, um, you know, the day of. I mean, I can just tell you, like of all the times that I've been nominated, like the day of, you're just like nervous and tense and. And thinking of all the reasons why you wouldn't win it or shouldn't yeah. win it. Yeah. And um, so the psychology is definitely difficult. And I think, you know, I know it wears on my wife, too, because she always comes with me. And, um, you know, my partner Donato and his wife always go as well. And so, you know, you spend the day kind of like wringing your hands and trying to not think about it and, you know, do other things. Mm-hmm. That morning, my wife and I, we had a nice walk through the park. 
I think it's Wicker, not Wicker Park. I don't know, but it's that park in Chicago where there's all the statues and yeah, I'm, uh, and uh, there's art, art installations. It's yeah. where Frank Gehry has that incredible band shell, and we oh, just okay. kind of walked around there and you know killed time that way. And then you know we went and had a nice lunch at Public Inn, and then you know and then um, you know made our way to the awards. And um, yeah, I mean when they finally called my name, I was it was it's elation, you know. I mean yeah. I was super happy. Um, you know, first thing I did was take a few steps back to the, the row behind me and give my friend David Kinch a hug because uh, he's been a you know a friend and a he's and, such and a, a good, supporter he's, for I only years. know him from interviewing him yeah. but I, I consider him a friend now yeah he's a great he's, guy if he if if you get along with him he'll he's he shows up yeah he's he's a great guy so yeah I mean, that was the first thing I did I gave my wife a big kiss and I walked down the aisle and you know Donnie um, you know Paul's partner gave me a big hug and Tom Clico gave me a big hug and you know, I don't know, getting up to the stage and walking across it, you just, I don't even, you know, it's all sorts of emotion. Yeah. But then, you know, it came time to, like, deliver this little speech that I'd written on my notes on my phone, and I couldn't read it at all because everyone was texting me and sending oh, so notes. Oh, so all like, this stuff yeah, popping up. Yeah, all shit kept popping like up on my phone. Yeah, and I couldn't, I couldn't even read what I wrote, so I just basically had to wing it. Yeah. Um, you did fine. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was great, you know, and then... I don't know. I mean, a friend, a chef that I used to work for many years ago when I was working with Larry, actually, Larry yeah. Fulgione, Melissa Kelly. She yes. S- she sent me a message and said, you know, um, you know, enjoy tonight. It's like, you know, it's like being C- Cinderella for the night uh-huh. you know, and then go out and get drunk. She and was, I, wasn't she the one who was at the old Chatham sheep herding for years? She was there. And yeah, she was in upstate and, New York. Right. Yeah. And my wife and I worked for her when she was at the Beekman 1776 Tavern. Oh, okay. Or 1766 Tavern. That was a Forgione property. That was a Larry Forgione place. Which also is the, upstate At the New Beekman York. Arms yeah. in Rhinebeck. Yeah. And so, I mean, my wife and I, we worked for Larry in the city. And then when we graduated from school, we worked for Larry up there in yeah. upstate under, under Melissa Kelly. Yeah. So can we talk about this for just a minute? I, I didn't realize, so I was looking at your bio getting ready to talk to you. I think this is a thing, I, I, it's a it's a stereotypical thing I'm going to say, but I th- it's, a, it's a positive. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people I know who operate in Southern California, uh, and I'm not asking your exact age, but you seem younger than you must be. Yeah. Because you're dressed casually, you've yeah. got, you know, always have a little color in your face, yeah. you seem kind of chill. Yeah. And then I went and looked up, like, who you'd work for, and you've worked for, like, a lot of people who are sort of in the, like, icon stuff. Like, Larry Forgione yeah. is, like, I was stunned to read that you had worked for Larry for a while. Yeah. Including at an American Place, which yeah. was the landmark restaurant, yeah. restaurant that he opened in 83 in New York City. Yeah. I mean, I... Like, from the very beginning in my career, I always felt like I always wanted to work for distinguished people. Yeah. Like, I never, I didn't, I always, I always wanted to work with the best. You uh-huh. know, like, whoever, you know, whoever that happened to be, uh, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, at that time, like, when I started cooking late 80s, you know, there's not, there, there wasn't a lot of ways to, like, get information about who was doing what. I mean, you had Gourmet Magazine, you had Bon Appetit, you had... New York Times. New York Times. Yeah. You had, like, there was, you know, it was a much different media world. Like, nowadays, like, some, you, you, you know, you'll hear about kids doing pop-ups, like, in yes. Silver Lake. Yes, You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and people be covering it extensively. Or Mexico City. Right. So, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, but the, the landscape has changed so much. So, you know, I remember one time, I think it was maybe Food Arts and Larry was on the cover. It might have been might have been even food and wine he was holding the chicken okay and I, I saw that picture of him at the i was working at a little restaurant in new hope pennsylvania which is where i really uh-huh. kind of started and 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 you not know, the cut chef, loose in yeah no not at the, a place called the forger house okay which was a great a great little restaurant the guy i mean i still am in touch with the chef that's that great owned that place he has, now has a place down in um in north carolina but um 
you know, and, and I remember seeing that, that magazine on his desk with Larry on the front cover. And I said, you know, like, that's the guy I want to work for. So I applied. And, you know, when I went to cooking school and we had, you know, you have to do your externship at CIA. Mm -hmm. So I applied to Larry. I applied with Alice Waters. Mm -hmm. I applied with Wolfgang Puck. Mm -hmm. I applied with uh, Jimmy Schmidt, Schmidt, who yeah. was, I believe, at the Rattlesnake Club. Which was actually owned, co-owned with uh, Michael McCarty yeah. of Michael Santa Monica. Right. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, like at that moment in time, those people were you know, sort of like on the cutting edge of American cuisine. And that's, so I, you know, those are the type of people that I always wanted to work for right from the beginning of my career. Interesting. So was it for you, um, it's funny because on the same show, I just interviewed her about an hour and a half ago, Della Gossett yeah. was saying that she was a career changer. Because mm. I said, wow, you know, you work for Charlie Trotter and then you go to Wolfgang Puck. Mm. And she said, well, I started late and I decided if I was going to do this, I wanted to work for the best. Right. Right? Mm. Uh, when you say it though, is it, was it for you, because you wanted to learn from the best? Was it that you wanted the challenge of proving yourself in those environments that were probably the most demanding at the time? Mm. What was the driver for that desire? I think because, you know, I, uh, you know my, I, I use, my father is a mentor to me, you mm -hmm. know, and, and like a, and a role model, and he was very successful in um, completely unrelated field. And I kind of, I, I you know, I, I think like a lot of people, like I, you know, I really felt like if I was going to be a cook yeah. and I was going to commit myself to it, it was going to have to be like, I wanted it to be a, you know, somewhat distinguished career. Yeah. I felt like the only way I'd be able to achieve that was by working for people that had already reached that level. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I felt like, um, so you felt like, like in all ways, so like their mentorship, the, 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 what you would what you would see and absorb right their uh, ability, like on all yeah. levels it would that it would just imbue you with sort of the best yeah I think I possibility mean, I, of getting I, there yourself or a place like that yeah I mean I think like what I learned you know the, like the one thing that I learned with my father is like from my father is that like you need to you know if you want to achieve in any field yeah like you've got to be around the best the best yes. minds the best yes. thinkers the yes. best you know um, and I mean in our case it, you know the best craftsmen or the best artists you know, those are the type of people that, you know, that will, you know, give you the knowledge that you need mm -hmm. or the inspiration that you need in order to become successful. And so that, yes. I think that's why I gravitated towards people that, you know, that, that, you know, are agreed, you know, agreed upon to be sort of like, you know, the leaders of this field. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, you know, when I left, uh, when I left working for Larry and went to New York, like I really wanted to, you know, I mean, I applied to only the, only four star places. Like you know, I applied to Boulay, I applied to Le Bernardin, I applied to, um, Le Cirque, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, uh, those are the type of people I always wanted to be working with and yeah. for because, yeah. I knew, because I knew I knew, I also think I knew I needed it. Like I needed a, you know, I, I you needed to be challenged in that way. Needed to be challenged. Like, yeah. I, you know, did I you have an, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I never wanted to be like a, you know, journeyman. Yeah. Or a middle of the road kind yeah. of person. Like I wanted to, if I was going to do this, like I wanted to do it really well. Yeah. So you, uh, well, first of all, what brought you out here? Wolfgang Puck. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. I had worked, you know, I was work, I worked in New York for several years at Le Cirque, and then uh, they opened a new restaurant, and it was called Osiria del Cerco, and mm -hmm. I was one of the opening chefs at Cerco. And then um, that was the Sons, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Mauro and Mario yeah. and Marco. Yeah. And uh, I was the chef along with um, Alessandro Giuntoli, who is actually one of Sirio's nephews. Okay. Italian. Okay. Born and. Um, 
and we kind of ran that place together. And um, and then I just decided like I needed a change, and my wife and I thought maybe we needed to get out of New York. Mm-hmm. My wife was a pastry chef and worked at um, she was a pastry chef at Zoe in New York. Oh sure, she was a pastry chef at Topeka with David Walzog. Sure, in New York. I just saw David in Vegas yeah. uh, back in October. We yeah, had lunch so, together. Yeah, and we you know we kind of decided like maybe we want to start a family. Yeah, maybe, you know maybe New York's not the right place to do it. And so I applied to again. I applied to Wolfgang. I applied with. Uh, uh, I believe I applied with Jeremiah Tower. I applied with Alice Waters, and you know the first pe- first guy that got back to me was Wolfgang. He said, "Why don't you come out?" Like uh, personally, I will, yeah, I'll, I'll put you on a plane. You come out, you <laughs> cook with me for a couple of days, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and and I did, and I, you know I remember we did a couple of private. We did one night. We did like a private party. It was just yeah. me and Wolf cooking. Yeah, and uh, maybe one or you know one or two other cooks. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And it was also like completely different yeah. than anything I'd ever done because, you know, with Larry, we're cooking obviously very like American regional food. You know, I trained at the CIA and then I trained, you know, I trained at Le Cirque and I trained in France. So everything after I left Larry was like just very rigorous French technique, yes. and French food. Yeah. And, and to, you know, to come out here and then, you know, and work with Wolfgang. I remember we, he cooked one of the dishes that we cooked, I'll never forget. It was like a, we had a live king crab and he hacked the thing to pieces and then cooked it in a black bean sauce, like a Chinese. Was this a Shinwa? Black bean sauce. No, it was at Spago. At Spago. The original Spago on yeah. Avenue. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and I was thinking, like, I had never seen anything like that. I'd never yeah. eaten that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know it's, now I know that it's very, you know, it's a, it's a fairly common dish if you go to a Chinese seafood yeah. restaurant. Yeah. But for him, you know, to see Wolf doing it with a live king crab and making this delicious, like, black bean sauce yes. with king crab was completely different for me. I never but, saw anything like it. But did you connect with him on a certain level? Because that sounds very casual and, and spontaneous and yeah. primal, right? Yeah. But he he had training, comp- he had some serious freaking training. This is the thing I think so many people don't get about Wolfgang Pock, is he came up in three-star Michelin restaurants. Yeah. No, Wolf's... And then came over here and, you know, had this vision of doing this stripped-down food, but with the amazing... Pa- I mean, he's just sort of a once-in-a-generation yeah. talent, you know? And, I mean, and he's achieved more than probably anybody, any other chef in the world, I would think. From a business standpoint. From a business standpoint, oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, do you know what I mean? But, but he's I, also... But he also has that foundation. He has chops. Yeah. No, he definitely has chops. I mean, I, he's... Yeah, he's an excellent cook. He knows... Um, he has. He's a very instinctual cook. Yes, um, he's a, he's a, I don't know. I mean, he was an inspiration to me. I, he, you know, he, he might not have been at Spago every day, but he was working every day. Yeah. He worked his ass off and yeah. everybody around him worked their ass off. Uh, and he, um, you know, he's inspirational. He, you know, I never heard him raise his voice. Never, ne- honestly, never really saw him angry. Like there's I, people in that company who've been there for 40 years. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, and he treats people well and he understands yeah. that he understands that if he wants to keep good people around him, he needs to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, I spent I spent about a year working with Wolf, and you know, it was right at the time when Spago, Be- Spago Beverly Hills was about to open, mm-hmm. and so you know, for a while there at the very beginning, it was Wolf was always around, Lee Hefter was always around. Mm-hmm. There was a big team around because they kind of was gathering, sort of like talent, I guess you would say. That was going to disperse, but had it yet exactly right. And so there was a, when I first was when I first got there, there was tons of people around always. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, Francois was around still. Francois mm-hmm. Kwakudongo. Okay. Uh, um, uh, you know, Wolf Lee, this guy Matt Benchavenga, who who yes, uh, uh, he's he passed he passed he away, passed he away like a couple cancer. years yeah, ago. Yeah, great guy. He was around. Thomas Boyce was around. He wound up going up to Portland. Married to Kim Boyce. Mm-hmm. All all sorts of people. Yeah. Uh, and then once you know, once Spago uh, Beverly Hills opened, then the team kind of broke up, and yes. I you know, and I stayed on as the chef de cuisine at the original Spago. And yeah. I did that for about a year, and I loved it. You know, I mean, I had pretty 
pretty much free reign. You know, everyone wants somebody to come and tell you, hey, your food costs are a little high. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, maybe I won't buy as many truffles this week or this right. month, you know. But uh, that was pretty much, other than that, like, I could just do what I wanted to do. And, right. you know, and I really, once, when I started doing that, like, when I was on my own there, I really started digging deep, like, back into, you know, all the, the French food that I cooked back in New York. Yeah. Um, because it's, that's just like, that was my comfort zone, I guess you You realize say. that's kind of who you were as a yeah. chef. And I really started cooking a lot like that. And then my wife was, had, was uh, taking a class at UCLA Extension mm-hmm. and uh, wound up being uh, in a class where uh, uh, Jeff King, who's mm. the owner of the um, Water Grill, mm-hmm. was speaking and okay. met him. Like, really, he was a great guy. I don't know if you ever met him, but no. great guy. Like, uh, just one of those people that kind of like draws people in. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wife absolutely loved him and talked to him after after the uh, class and you know said that, you know I'm in the, I'm a pastry chef because my my wife was a pastry for uh, Wolfgang for two and a half years she mm-hmm. she was the pastry chef at Aubergine and Beverly Hills and then they also had one in Seattle and mm-hmm. one in um, one in uh, Arizona somewhere okay and she ran all three of those yeah. pastry departments and she helped open Shinwan Vegas um, and um, she said you know my husband's a chef and this and that and he gave her a card and said well if you ever need anything let me know. And then, you know, I found out that there was this restaurant called The Water Girl downtown that was looking for a chef. And I was like, hmm, that might be interesting. So I applied for the job and uh, through Jeff, like, you know, called him uh, from the business card that I had and said, well, why don't you send a resume and we'll see what happens. And then, you know, I interviewed, I cooked for him a couple of times and then eventually got the job. So I mm-hmm. left Wolf after about a year uh, and started The Water Girl for, and I was got there it. for like seven years. So what, um, <laughs> what uh, you know, Providence to me is such a, singular restaurant out here. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about fine dining in L.A., yeah. they're almost uh, 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 they're almost mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. But you've managed to pull it off. Right. Um, would you agree with that? De- yeah. Definite, you know, so, A, what what made you want to do a place like that here? And B, how have you threaded that needle? Yeah, how have you I've... made it work in this setting where people don't like to generally get dressed up, Yeah. don't you know, everything's casual. You know, every t- I, whenever I pack to come out here, I always have this moment where I have a dialogue with myself where I go, is this going to be okay to wear to whatever X? Mm. And then I go, yeah, yeah, it is. It's L.A. It's fine. Right. You know, and it always is. Right. Um, I mean, for me, like, I always knew that that restaurant would be what it is. Like, I, you know. I, you had a vision? You had a real strong well, vision for it? I really feel like it was all I ever knew. Like, I only ever worked in fine dining restaurants. Right. You know, I, I never worked any... You know, I mean, probably the most casual place I ever worked was an American place, yeah. you know, or maybe the Beekman 1766 Tavern. <laughs> right. So, like, you know, I, I, you know, that I felt like that's what I'd been preparing for my whole career for 15 years right. leading up to that. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think just it, that's what it was always going to be because I didn't yeah. know anything else. I, I didn't right, know else but how'd do. you make it fly here? Well, I mean, you're one, not I, even from here, like, right? Because sometimes people who are from here, like I think about somebody like Bruce Barter, well, you know, and like he's just he's like L.A. or like, Michael it, McCarty, yeah, yeah, it's just he's well, part of the DNA. It's like in their blood, yeah. You know? They can feel it, but you didn't even have that benefit. I didn't. But when I came and ate there that first time, I was so it was just. It totally feels like it belongs right there. Mm. You know, it's perfect. It, to me, it was amazing. It's yeah. like one of the great meals I've had in the last 10 years. But yeah. definitely in terms of a meal in Los Angeles, yeah. it's it's in a, it's in its... And I'm not putting down other food. I'm just saying it's in a class by itself in that, that style of dining. Yeah. You know? I feel like, you know... I feel like I had a leg up, you know, I mean, I kind of started to make a little bit of a name for myself at, at Water Girl. Yeah. And, then, you know, and I was lucky enough 
to you know strike up a partnership with Donato, mm -hmm. my partner. How'd you guys meet? We met at Watergo. Okay. He 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 was hired to be a manager there, and yeah. uh, you know, like right away, I was drawn to him. I was like, this guy. He approaches the front of the house like a back of the house employee. You know what I mean? He's workmanlike, roll up your sleeves. Oh, I see what you mean. You know, get yeah. get shit done, but all, no excuses. Yeah, but all while wearing you know a Prada suit and and you know and uh, beautiful you know, shoes and beautiful and, shoes yeah. and wearing a yeah. huge smile yeah. and you know and just um, you know I mean he's he is. I mean, if there is a ledge, you know, there are a few, if you're going to build like a Rushmore of like front of the house guys mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, it would be, you know, Piero Salvaggio, Donato. Yeah. And, you know, probably there's a couple of guys that have been through the ranks with uh, with Wolf. Yes. That would belong up there, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael Dargan and, and uh, Johnny Romalia. Yeah. Who, you know, just... You know, th th those, I mean, the, like Michael McCarty is another one, like the definition of hospitality, all those guys. Yeah. And uh, and so I feel like that definitely gave the restaurant a leg up. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, people still walk in the door every day and say, I'm a friend of Donato's. And, you know, like, and, um, you know, because all the years that he spent at Premi and, yeah. and with, with, um, Piero. With Piero. And yeah. then, he, you know, then he opened Bastide with, uh, initially with Alain Giraud. Yeah. And then, you know, went through, uh, Ludo was a chef there for a while, and uh -huh. Walter Mansky was a chef there uh -huh. for a while. And then finally, um, you know, Joe Pitka comes to the restaurant all the time. He was the owner of yeah. of Bastide, and, um, you know, he, he got to know our, our then chef de cuisine. His name was Paul Shoemaker. And, uh, and, then, and then he hired Paul to be the chef of, of Bastide after he fired all the other guys. Anyway, long, I mean, we, we sort of got off the track there, but That's okay. know, but I feel like, you know, Providence was always going to be that, you know, it was always yeah. going to be fine dining, it was always going to be, you know, beautiful silver, beautiful yeah. china, beautiful glassware, a great wine list, yeah. a nice dining room, you know, a beautiful dining room and a place that, um, you know, a place that I wanted it to feel like a refuge and it didn't, you know, like a place where you could walk in and, you know, every, the world falls away and just come mm -hmm. in and you focus on food and family and friends yes. and yeah. whoever you're dining with and, uh, you know, I mean, to me... You know, as a kid, like growing up as a kid, I, you know, my I was lucky enough that my parents would take me out to nice restaurants, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and it would have experiences like that. And food, so food was always very important in my life. And and I, you know, I can still remember meals that I ate with my family when I was in my teens. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. And and uh, you know, you those can like run them down. Can yeah. You run down all the food. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm the same way. Uh, and and and, you know, and I wanted to have a restaurant where I could create you know, memories like that for people. And that's why, that's how I, why I always knew that Providence would be what it is. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it, you know, continue, continues to change. It continues to evolve. Sure. The food is very different than it was when we first opened, you know. Um, but, you know, I always feel like, and I know Donato feels the same way, and so does the chef de cuisine, Tristan, yeah. who's, Tristan Atchison, who's been there ever since we opened the doors, that our work, you know, our best work is still in front of us, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that it's a big I think, statement. And I think, well, I, I think any good chef will tell you that. Yeah, you, know you what have I mean? to have that attitude. You have right? to have that attitude. The minute you, it sounds like a cliche, but the minute you don't, you're just you start to coast. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you just, you know, I, you know, I constantly we're constantly pushing, constantly driving, and like, you know, now I feel like I feel it as it's as much a responsibility to our guests as it is to the people that are around that that surround me in the mm. kitchen and in the front of the house, mm -hmm. like to constantly you know push them to. To create new experiences for them, to yep. create new, you know, new challenges for them, and to create, you know, to keep, you know, we keep pushing myself and all the, the chefs that are there, to, to create, you know, a menu that is challenging, you know, for them, for 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 our cooks to prepare, but also one, you know, where we don't we don't forget that at the end of the day, our guests have to enjoy it too. Yeah. And, and um, 
And so that's, you know, that's really what I think keeps the restaurant fresh and, yeah. and evolving. Are you personally excited about the Michelin Guide returning? I am. I am. I mean, I think... Did you, you know, feel dissed when they left? I, f uh, I, you know, I didn't, not personally, like I didn't, I didn't take it personally. Yeah. I, but I did think that, you know, I, I just, I just feel like, you know, LA is LA. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a very opinionated city. Yeah. And, and I think we... We kind of get our our our, um, our hackles up pretty easily, and I think LA definitely got their hackles up about Michelin, about you know, slight w what they perceive to be slights or omissions, mm -hmm. and uh, made it known. You know, both you know, and I'm talking about like not you only mean when the guide was here, people who didn't get yeah. a star. To no, no, no. I don't. No, I'm not, I don't think it came, didn't necessarily come from the chefs, but definitely came from the media. And yeah, it, and it and I think it also came from diners and stuff. Yeah, like a lot. Of, I think a lot of diners, and I think a lot of diners still have this opinion that you know, well, LA doesn't need that. And 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 we don't you know we don't need the Michelin Guide and you know I, and I think felt that way about New York when they came. Yeah, but you know, but I think that's that's an easy sort of um, that's an easy kind of uh, you know answer to come up with if you're not a chef. Mm -hmm. But if you are a chef and if you you know like I mean myself personally, you know I remember when I left New York to go and work in France, I went because you know because I wanted to work in a Michelin star yeah. environment. And you know I remember what like when I made that decision, I can tell you the exact moment. I was sitting down. We were having, uh, we were on our dinner break, and I was. There were a lot of French cooks in the kitchen at Le Cirque, and mm -hmm. um, and there was this one guy in particular. His name was Christophe Megel, who now he works in Singapore. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, but anyway, he was showing me his CV, his resume, and I was looking at. It and I was like, and he happened to live in. Uh, he grew up in Strasbourg. Okay. So Strasbourg at the time, like per capita, had more Michelin stars than any other city wow. in Europe. Yeah. You know, because you had Crocodile and Emile Young, yeah, and you yeah. had. Um, you know, several other three Michelin star yeah. restaurants in a tiny little village. And this guy had worked at all of them. And I was looking at a CV and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, I need that. I need to have that on my resume. Yeah. And so I went home that night and I told my wife, I'm like, look, we're not getting any younger and we're going to have kids at some point. Like, we got to do this now. And we started making plans. And, you know, I talked to the, the chef de cuisine and the executive chefs at, at uh, Le Cirque and they got me hooked up and, mm -hmm. and I went. And I left a really good job at Le Cirque too. You know, I was... Yeah. I've been there for several years. I've risen to uh, saucier, and from there, the next step is sous chef. Yeah, and uh, and I left it, and I said, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go work for free. Yes, and you know, in France, I'm going on a quest for knowledge. Exactly. Because, yeah, you know, that's because what it that's was. what you do. Yeah, and it's like so many other people that gone before me. Yeah, and so many people that have come after me. Like yes, you kids that are still doing that today. Do you feel like some you need to go over there? Do you feel like you need to cross an ocean to get that kind of that, that level of training still? Do you think you can get it as good here, or do you think you there's can. still a gap? Now you can. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, when I went over there in 1994, oh, yeah. I felt like, I'd, like I, there wasn't, you know, there weren't many places, places I could here. go yeah. there, that would have that benefited me more than where I was. You know what I mean? Where would you go? I mean, there was I Trotter. Could go, I, yeah, could have gone maybe. there or something. Uh, the laundry was only a year old. Yeah. I mean, like, where would you go with it at that time in this country? But also the thing was is, like, you know, like Michelin star restaurants, like the one, that, the first one that I wound up working in was like, you know, you're talking about a restaurant that at the most, in the in the time that I was there, the most guests we ever served was 42. Yeah. And we had a, we had maybe a dozen cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. It's different. You yeah. Know, it's very different. And yeah. you know that level of detail, that level of execution, that level of craft is hard to find anywhere. Not mm -hmm. it, at that time it was. Now you can find that. You know, you could go to, you could go to Bennu, you could go to Saison, uh, you could go to. Um, in Manresa, you know, yeah. you have now you have, you know, 
restaurants of a you know of a three Michelin star level in this in this country that are you know I, I believe every bit the equal of their yeah. European counterparts now, or Japanese counterparts or you know wherever the guide is printed. What is the main thing about when people for you when you talk about training like that right is the main thing technique or is it something else? Is it like kitchen organization or is it the whole experience it's of the those? Whole experience. Like you talk about Donato having that. Uh, back of house attitude in the front of the house yeah. when I think of those great Michelin three star restaurants of Europe that's what I think of right. I feel like the minute you walk in the door you're just like you're just like on a conveyor belt yeah. <laughs> like you are just you're wanting for nothing right and that's exactly the way you should approach restaurants like that as a guest yeah. you know what I mean like I'm here I'm right, here to I'm enjoy yours. the ride here I, right. yeah, what are we right. doing I'm you submitting know? exactly yeah <clears throat> I, I mean, honestly, I feel like what what it does for you as a you know as a young chef or a young cook is it it shows you what's possible. You know what I mean? Right. It, you know, I, I think it, it opens that door and and um, you know and reveals exactly what what you could potentially achieve one day. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you know to cook at a you know in a Michelin three star restaurant, whether it's here or whether it's there, or Japan or Spain or wherever. You know, I think what you see is like you know, it's just such a dedication to craft and a dedication to hospitality, mm-hmm. a dedication to quality. Um, you know that it's very, you know, it's very, very difficult to achieve that level no matter where you are. And um, and yeah. it's it's just something like if you're an aspirational chef, you know, it's it's fuel for the fire. You know what I mean? Well, it's also isn't a lot of those places. Obviously, some of them are in major cities, right? But a lot of those places, they're like. They're in, the, they're in a little country town. Mm-hmm. They're very often the only reason you would go to that town. Right. So they take on this even heightened sense of of, of uh, meaningfulness. You know, like I, I don't know if you ever have. I once saw David Kinch speak talking about Alain Chappelle. Yeah. And he the whole the way he told this story, it was like he was relived driving out there yeah. and getting there. And then there's a dish he described, I, I think with peas and lamb and and but it's like. I mean, he describes it like a great writer. It, yeah. It's unbelievable how indelible this moment was for him. Yeah. Well, but I, I think, think there's every... something about them; these places being kind of removed from almost everything else. Mm. You know, mm. you know, people talk about the like the it's not around like that journey that people would make to El Bui. Yeah. You know, but that's that's very co- typical of a lot of those restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I remember the first time I went to Michel Bra, you know, and I had had. I mean, I bought his first book, like, I think it was 1990 or 1991, mm-hmm. the Le, Le Livre de Michel Bra, which now, if you can find it, it's going to cost you 1200 bucks. Mm-hmm. that book. Um, you know, so, I mean, I had mythologized this guy in my head for, you know, 20 plus years. Yeah. And when, when I finally went, I took my two kids with me and my wife. You know, we were all, you know, I mean, for I felt that, you know, like driving up to, you know, in, in, into, he's in La Giole in the mm-hmm. Albrac. You know, like driving up there, you know, it's up this you know, mountain pass and you, you know, you've got the, the typical cows up there in in the, in the, in the, in the, um, in the fields on either side of the road. And you drive up to the, to what is, you know, the restaurant. It's just, it's stunning, like incredible. Like, you know, we stayed there for the night and, you know, like just, um, I just remember it being absolutely amazing, you know, and I remember it being like very, very hot in the Valley. By the time we got up to where the restaurant was, it gotten cold, you know, and we, 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 we checked in. We we settled into our rooms, and then we met the kids out back behind the rooms that we mm-hmm. were staying in. And there was like, you know, just this incredible view over what is called the Massif Central mm-hmm. in, in France. There, and you know, mountains in the background, and and you know, cows yeah. sort of like walking around in the field yeah. right behind the place. Just it's it was absolutely it's magical. I guess that's the ter- word I'm looking for. It's heightened. Yeah, but also it's everything like, you're describing, it just like 
it heightens all your senses. It makes it all just seem almost yeah. like dreamlike. I mean, it is. And then, you know, I remember, I remember we checked into the hotel. And we're like, well, we have reservations for dinner. What time should we come down? And like, you know, we're open from 7 till 10 or 7 till 9. Come when you like. Because it was basically your table for yeah, the night. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's you know, like, you get there. Yeah. You know, I remember we, we check into the front desk. They bring us into the lounge. You know, they, they start to bring us uh, yeah. amuse-bouche and the wine list and the menu. And, yeah. you know, let's we can talk about the wine list. We can talk about the menu now. And then, you know, whenever you're ready, we'll go into, you know, we'll go in and so get you seated for dinner. It's just, yeah. it's magical. It's special. It's different. It's something that, you know, you there are very few places in the world when you can experience that level of hospitality. And, uh, you know, and it takes years and years and years and years to get to that point. I mean, even like, a, I mean, you mentioned El Bulli. Like, El Bulli was not... No. anything like what it wound no, up being no. you know it was a it was a humble little restaurant perched on the side or, of a cliff I mean now you would point to something like uh, Osteria Francescana you yeah. know and Massimo Bottura will tell you when he first opened it people were screaming sacrilege yeah because he was you know bastardizing classic Italian of food of course yeah I mean you he, know? Yeah, he was he was that was not an instant hit no yeah it I mean is Patrick O'Connell same thing I mean I, you were at the Beard Awards you saw that package they put together for him for the so end of Washington yeah I chatted you know, with him started, right after he's yeah. on such a high right now I mean it, yeah I mean now a three Michelin star chefs when he yeah. opened 40 years ago he's charging 4.95 for dinner yeah you know I mean it was it was basically a diner in, a, in, in the a, middle in a, of nowhere yeah, I'm insane. about to go there for the first time well, ever I, I have I'm you been sure it's gonna be amazing I, no but I've been hearing stories of it all my life because my my aunt and uncle are uh, both live in DC okay and live in Bethesda and so they would go you know they special occasions go there for special occasions for 30 years they've been going there. but even you know I knew you know, more or less where it is, but I, you know, I've, I've now actually had to plan the trip, right? Yeah, so it is, there. well, it really makes that Michelin line worth like, a worth, journey. It's literally because you get, like, I'm taking a train to DC and then it's like almost like a two hour yeah. adventure after that, yeah. which is fine. I mean, I'm going to stay there, mm-hmm. but anyway. I mean, we did the same thing. I remember on this, this same trip where we went to Michel Bralik, one of the other chefs that I absolutely um, have idolized like my entire, um, my entire um, career. Um, is um, oh my god Olivier Rolanger okay and uh, you know we went to his restaurant on that trip too and we stayed there I mean oh my god what an incredible yeah. place like yeah. I mean it's just the most it was the most beautiful like seaside country manner that was just like you know just so incredibly mm-hmm. pristine I remember my wife and I we checked in and you know he's Olivier Rolanger was his food was very much about spices mm-hmm. I mean obviously incredible seafood but also spices and mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because Brittany you know in, in the area where he is was always a, a part it was a it was a, it was a stop on the route in the spice trade yeah and so spice was is very important to that region and very important to him so all the rooms in this manner are named after spices oh, so great. we stayed in the ginger room and of course there's like ginger on the t- like candy ginger yeah. for you to enjoy when you get to the room our kids were staying in the um, I think it was cinnamon was the name of the room okay but I remember we, my wife and I would check in and put our stuff away, like push the curtains aside to look out onto the onto the bay. Yeah. And there are these like there's these two little girls down there on the on the on the in the field like right below our window, and they're like in these country dresses like. And we were, my wife and I were thinking to ourselves like this is just it's like a fucking postcard. They must have staged this. Right. You know? It just couldn't be happening yeah. this way, but it was like yeah. that was what that's. You know, that's the magic that places like that provide. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it, and, and it's it, a unique thing. And, and it changes you. Yeah. I, as even a diner or someone who observes your industry, I remember years ago I, I wrote a book about the Bocuse d'Or and I spent a bunch of yeah. time around the French Laundry. It was the year Tim Hollingsworth competed. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never eaten at, even I'd never eaten at the French Laundry. I got to eat there a few times. I got to eat at Danielle, mm. you know, places I just hadn't splurged on. Yeah. And I remember saying to my agent at the time, uh, I said, you know, David, 
when you eat meals at these places, it changes you. Yeah. And he said, he made a joke. Like, yeah, you gain weight. I said, no, no, no. It really, it changes you. Your, yeah. Your understanding of real hospitality, your under, like you said, what's possible. Right. Your understanding of what the food can be. You know, like it, I. Well, I think I fully believe that the French Laundry is that same type of magical place. Oh, yeah, 100%. like I mean, having seen it, like I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to consider Thomas a friend, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and I've been there. He hosts these dinners every once in a while for chefs, fellow chefs, and you know, I've been lucky enough to go a few times. And like, what that restaurant has become, especially after the renovation, is is that? Uh, I mean, it is the prototype for what a restaurant could be in terms of you know limiting the carbon footprint that the restaurant has. You know all the work that he's done, having geo geothermal heating and cooling, and uh, you know he's got well, and then like the farm, solar the power. farm across the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, it's just crazy. Yeah, he's got solar power there yeah. in the restaurant. Like, it's ridiculous. It's incredible. Yeah. Like every aspect of it is incredible. Yeah. I mean, we this past year I was there for a dinner and we sat in this this new private room that they built around this big circular table, which is just I mean, it's one of the most beautiful tables I've ever sat at. Yeah. And then to be able to sit at it with Thomas and with you know, with other chefs um, that I respect and admire, and to be able to be there in their company makes you know made that meal all the more special. Mm -hmm. But the fact that Thomas, like in all of his success and all of his um, all the you know accolades and adulation that he receives on a daily basis, mm -hmm. to be you know to still want to get a group of his you know colleagues to sit around him and just talk and discuss and mm -hmm. you know what you know what's going on in your place mm -hmm. you know what are the challenges that you're facing is incredible you yeah. know what i mean like to me for somebody of that stature to to you know to put these events together to bring people together just sit and talk honestly is incredible and i remember at one point in the meal he was sitting there and he was talking about when he was a kid and he was coming up and just starting to make a name for himself and the chef that at that moment that everyone in the country really idolized was jean-louis paladin mm -hmm from the Watergate Hotel in D.C. And he remembered the first time that he was actually able to, like, meet him and sit down with him and, and you know, enjoy a meal together. And the feeling they had and the thought that was going through his head, like, Jesus Christ, here I am. And I'm, this guy is everything to me. Yes. And here I am. And we're sitting and we're enjoying a meal together. And I know every chef at that table, along, uh, you know, including myself, was thinking exactly that same thing about Thomas at that moment as he well, was telling he, that story. he does seem to get and cherish his place in the industry. You know, he, I don't know if he still does it, but I know he used to mail, like if people got nominated for yeah, beers, every, I, he would mail a typed, personally signed letter. I've got every one that he yeah. ever sent me. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, mean, I, I asked him once on the record, I said, did you want this position of leadership? You know, and he said, yeah, just very matter-of-factly. I think he he likes to be able well, to, you just don't, he you don't, loves to be able to do that. Yeah, but you don't wind up where he is by accident. No, you no. know what I mean? Him yeah, I mean, of all people, I don't know a more yeah. methodical. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he is you know, nothing left to chance person. Yeah, he's yeah. absolutely an inspiration, yeah. and that's why he's achieved what he's achieved, and yeah. and he's able to open restaurants like all across the country. I mean, now he's just opened yeah. a tack room. And, he's got the and on, the and at sea now, and at sea. Yeah, I mean, it's he's on Seaborn now. Yeah, it's remarkable. You know. All right. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna let you go get some lunch. All right. Um, it's thanks a pleasure for, talking. Thanks to you. for sitting and chatting. It's a, really a real pleasure. It. Thank I, you. I'm glad that we had the chance to do it. Me too. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, man. This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Since opening in August 2015, Foster Sundry has evolved into a neighborhood hub for weekend brunch, weeknight groceries, coffee on your morning commute, a draft beer after work, and so much more. Their cheese counter, whole animal butcher, and produce section make grocery shopping a pleasure. Foster Sundry also offers catering and wholesale. 
Learn more at fostersundry.com. That's F-O-S-T-E-R-S-U-N-D-R-Y.com. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And you know, Heritage Radio Network has thousands more. Hi, my name is Linda Palaccio, and I'm the host on A Taste of the Past here on HRN. Join us on a weekly journey through culinary history, where we explore the when, where, what, and why of food throughout history. You can find A Taste of the Past wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the show. We're going to get you to our next interviews immediately. I'm not going to do any more promotion. We don't have time. (laughs) We're going to get right to the next interview. Laura Avery. Caitlin, you know of my love and of other people's love for the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Yes. Okay. So Laura Avery was the director of that market since 1982, a year after it was created. Wow. She's largely credited with making it into what it was. I mean, no single person really ever is responsible for something like that, but she is kind of credited with that. And um, I really wanted to talk to her. She was speaking at this panel. I've known her name forever. I've never met her. Um, And she suggested that Meredith Bell who is a newish farmer, a newishly minted farmer, a career switcher, who instead of going into a kitchen, went into the farming world, crash-coursed herself on how to do that, (laughs) and did it. Um, And we sat down during the lunchtime uh, at the conference, again, outside. The three of us had a lovely chat, and I literally don't think I need to say another word about it. I'm going to kick it right over to my interview with Laura Avery, and Meredith Bell, both of whom I was meeting for the first time and both of whom I hope to see again in the future. Here you go. Why don't you, Laura, tell me how the three of us ended being here and together? Because I had written to you. You recently retired from, uh, you seem too modest. Maybe you're not. You've had half a (laughs) beer, so maybe you'll (laughs) pat yourself on the back. But I was going to say you've recently retired from an illustrious career with the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Right. You're largely seen as the person who made that market Well, you know, I'm the only person who actually ran that market from a year after it started. Yes. It started in 1981. I came on board in 1982 when there really wasn't a job description for a farmer's market manager. Yeah. It was just kind of like the city manager of the city of Santa Monica needed yeah. someone to go out there on Wednesdays and tell the farmers where to park. Make sure all held in. Make money. sure it wasn't pandemonium. Yeah. yeah. And, uh... I, I started in, it just seemed like a really good, fun thing to do. I was a stay-at-home mom. I had an 18-month-old and a, and a two-month-old, and I was ready to get out of the house. It was wow. a one-day-a-week job when it started. Now, so had it was you a done, great job. Had you done jobs that had the same sort of a skill? Like, had you ever done... Had you ever done theater? Have you had you ever been involved in film production? Like, even in school? Had so are you, you ever... saying that a farmer's market is like theater? I, th- I think like a restaurant, it is like a production. <laughs> like a production, yes. right. Is it not? Uh, I think in, in a lot of ways it is. It's kind of just a lot of uh, coordinating where people yes. park. Yes. And then um, what I did in my very early days when I was learning about the farmer's market, there was a very minimal sort of a set of regulations that came out from CDFA, California Department of Food and Agriculture. Mm-hmm. But there was no real manual for how to operate a farmer's market. 
So I figure out if I'm going to be out here supervising about, when I started there were 45 farmers mm -hmm. on Arizona Avenue. I just need to get to know who you are and mm -hmm. can we talk and can I get to know you? So I kind of spent my first year just talking to farmers and finding out from their perspective what a farmer's market was. And what would make it work? Yeah, what, well, what makes it work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're so the before, ones that are there bringing all the produce and basically paying my salary because right. they're, they're charged a percentage for their booth. So, yeah. Okay. What's this for you? Well, I have to say, uh, we don't know each other before last night. Uh, we just met yesterday in <laughs> yeah, a couple of we emails last week. <laughs> but um, that's the beer talking. But, la but no, it's not. <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, this isn't me flattering a friend. That I think this market is largely considered, if not, if not the best, one of the very best farmers markets in this country, maybe in the world. I love going there. Uh, I'm spending. I'm flying home this Wednesday. I'm taking a friend who's never been to the market for a coffee and something to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, that morning before I head to the airport. I can give a, you some hot tips on what to get. I will do that off all the right, air. Great. Uh, thank you. But um, but before we get too deep into that, of all, there's of all the farmers that you've known over the years, I wrote asking for a sit down while we were here at this conference, and you said I'm copying Meredith. She has some ideas too. So um, of all the f farmers in the city of or the greater Los Angeles area, what was it about Meredith that, that you wanted her to be part of this conversation? Well, she and I were talking on a panel today together, mm -hmm. and I, actually, she's kind of one of my newer farmer acquaintances. She started the market, she'll tell well, you she's exactly. a newish farmer. Newish. newish. Yeah, newish. she is. Newish. And, uh, Last seven years? Six, Last seven? five. Five. Okay. Five years at the market, yeah. yeah. But I just feel like her story is unique and that kind of does charts a trajectory for yes. someone who kind of started at new in farming all the way through being at the farmer's market yes. and then sort of plotting the way forward. Got it. So we have, we're in a limited, you guys have a, a thing to get to. This is like, it's one thing after another panel, panel, panel today. Yeah. But, um, so the, the short version of your story, you were in the catering business? So I was in fashion and then okay. um, in New York City and got out of the fashion industry. And got, what were you doing in fashion? I was doing operations for a high-end luxury purse company. Operations is in production. As in store operations. Store operations. Yeah, so retail they, operations. they had their own retail. Yep. Okay, got it. Yeah, and uh, moved to San Diego, mm -hmm. and um, you know, there's no fashion or high-end luxury brands there, and so got into food and beverage and right. food and beverage operations. It seemed to have make sense, and the longer I stayed in it, um, you know, I got into sales, and then realized that the life that I was living and what I supported personally was not what I was selling. Um, and I just got to a point where I, I couldn't do it anymore. I felt jaded and I felt like, you know, what am I doing to impact society and what am I doing to make help other people and make myself better at the same point? Mm -hmm. um, so threw in the towel and said, that's it. I'm either going to go back to grad school and get into public policy or education or I'm going to start a farm. And now, here again, was there same similar question I asked Laura. Was there anything in your background, advocacy work, <laughs> Um, idealism. Did you like to read Ayn Rand books nope. as a kid? Like it literally was just my passion of food. Uh -huh. um, had never farmed a day in my life. Okay. My dad worked for an oil company. Okay, was, you know, in computers. Okay. Um, they thought I was certifiably crazy. I when mean, you my, decided you were going to do oh, a farm, when I was going to farm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, so how does one? How does one? It sounds like a bad Matt Damon movie. Like how do you start a farm? <laughs> 
Um, you know, I mean, literally, I just tell people, I, I, as I started to think about it more, I started to, you know, watch some docu documentaries and read some books. But it didn't make sense until I finally just said, I'm going to do it. And I'm just going to stop and go all in and put one foot in front of the other and just figure it out as I go. And I think, you know, because my background isn't in farming, I obviously have had a lot larger learning curve. Yes. Um, and it's taken me a long time to figure out what my path exactly is within farming. Mm -hmm. But I think I also, because because I'm not, I haven't been farming. I also bring an outsider's perspective, mm -hmm. um, and so I think of things I think a little bit differently than the traditional farmer. Um, and so I think that's, you know, my story resonates with people because of that. And I think yeah. people see it as maybe idealist, and I think of it as like I'm just doing what I feel like I should be doing in this world. It's like on this. We t this happens a lot on this show. There's a lot of cliches uttered on this yeah. show, and, yeah. but they're all true, right? You you're following your bliss, as right. Some people might put it, or your joy, or your right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's one of those funny things, right? Like I started farming because I wanted to do it for myself. Like selfishly, yes. I was like, this is what's going to make me happy. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's it's you know what the people have brought to me that has made me happy. It's not actually the farming itself. It's the fact that. I get to talk to people every day that are telling me about, you know, their health issues that they've had and how they've overcome them or how they're, you know, have been more passionate about food now than they have ever been before. And, you know, now they're educating themselves and their kids. And, you know, their kids are going to be the ones that are controlling the food system when we get older. And mm -hmm. I want to make sure that they're set up properly. So is this right? It's, it's, it's produce and also livestock? So yeah, that's why I said it was. It's been a twisty kind of turn for me. So I started off with produce, okay. went into beef, yeah. got into some pork and lamb, and about 18 months ago, I had a um, famous chef that stumbled across our chickens at the Santa Monica Farmers Market. And it was funny because when I when I started that market, um, one of the market managers said to me, "This market will change your life." And I and I kind of like was like, "Okay, you know, like I didn't really know. I mean, I knew I wanted to get into the market, and that was always a goal for me. But I I had no clue how it was truly, sincerely going to change my life." Can I and, interrupt for one second? Yeah, because I just don't want to lose the moment. So is that a is it is this a waitlist situation to get into the market? I was going to say the reason <laughs> Meredith the way Meredith got in is is I had a beef farmer. Yeah, I'd been trying to recruit grass fed grass finished local sustainably grown beef and i had one from lompoc yeah the drought came in 2015 yeah and uh she literally called me she said look i have a 15,000 acre land grant ranch there's not a blade of grass for my cattle for the first time in 200 years or 100 years i've got to ship all my cattle to northern california i have to drop out of the market so I had an opening for beef. So I knew yeah. Meredith had beef. So I called him and I said, hey, I got a beef opening. And so she came in and she started, it was, temporary. if it had been chickens, temporary. she wouldn't have gotten in, but it was beef. Right. Because I have chicken all over the place, but I had no, but no, I mean, yeah, it is. And, and I think when okay. I came into the market, people were like, one, who are you? Two, you just barely started farming. How did you get into this market? Because there's a seven year wait list. <laughs> Seven and year. That's seven the year. estimate. No, I, mean, I mean, that's what people say. Long, yeah. Yeah. People think yeah. it goes. Well, like, on. how many people? Like, how many uh, farms are on that list, roughly? Well, you know, people apply every year, yeah. and we 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 scan and save the the applications, and then we tell them we'll call you if we need you, and if you, you don't hear from us, just send us your updated information next year. So we don't. It's not prioritized into like you are next on the list. It's more about I something like this, where opening. there was a need for beef. I'm not going to put a strawberry person in because I needed beef. So right. I, Okay. So luckily, well, it, it all, it yeah. was meant to be. It was meant to be, yeah. <laughs> and I think 
two, we have to remember that the aging demographic of the farmer is getting older, right? And and I'm I'm not young by any means, but I'm definitely younger. And so I think for long-term perspective, you have to look at those younger generations of farmers that are coming in because that's who's going to carry and sustain these these farmers' mm-hmm. markets because inevitably all these people that have been in the market for 20 years are going to want to retire at some point. And then mm-hmm. who's going to carry on that tradition? Mm-hmm. Okay, so or let's. Or how do you? I'm sorry. Or how do you open a door to a new farmer? You know, I mean, right. uh, is somebody's got to retire, or decease, yes. or be kicked out for cheating? And so, yeah. because people don't necessarily say, oh, "I had enough of this." Once people are in that market, it's their livelihood, and they they tend to stay. Yeah, I mean, for me coming from New York, this is like the way people are with New York City apartments, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the <laughs> okay. old joke that people used to scan the obituaries. <laughs> farmers market control. And then they would scan the obituaries and then like see how to find the listings. Oh, yeah. You know, that's yeah. that, that's Crazy. true. Yeah. That's a real thing. Well, we have four markets in Santa Monica, and what we try to do is direct a farmer to one of our other markets yeah. and assure them that if you go to that market and if you really are going to engage with the customers, Ben Hyman, who is the farmer from Fisherman, Wild Local Seafood, we put him out at our Pico Saturday Farmer's Market mm-hmm. right at the entrance of the market. Mm-hmm. Not one person walked by his booth without him introducing himself yeah. and talking about seafood. He immediately became very successful in his booth at the Pico Farmer's Market with fish mm-hmm. because of his mad customer service Got skills. it. So what makes that market, what makes the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market, other than the fact it's in Santa Monica, other than the fact on the right day you can hear the waves crashing on the shore, right? We're just Almost. Uh, almost. <laughs> you can convince yourself you can hear them. Right. In my memory, I hear them when I'm there. I'll check it on Wednesday. Yeah. But uh, beyond all that, what is it? Well, what is so special about that market? I think what's interesting is Santa Monica is on a Wednesday. Yes. Most of the markets in L.A. are on Saturday or Sunday. For civ- so what chefs- I call civilians. Like for well, non-industry. Yes, yes, but people who, let's say, the restaurant trades. So yeah. they shop for the weekend, they load up for the weekend, and then on Tuesday they're out of everything. Okay. So they need to replenish on Wednesday for the weekend, yes. and they need a big variety yeah. of produce. And Santa Monica, we average now about 75 farmers a week. It's all seasonal, obviously. Yeah. Um, and we also get the actual farmer coming to the market. Okay. A lot of the markets on the weekends, they send employees because a lot of farmers will do five or six markets on a weekend. Saturday okay. and Sunday are the busiest market days for farms. Yeah. So when the farmer, him or herself, comes to the market, not only are they there and the customer gets all the absolute you know, accurate information about the farm. The farmer is then able, if somebody goes, oh, hey, say if I needed six cases of these, you know, next month or next week, or could you grow? The farmer can sit there and sort of like, you know, promise, you know, future, you know, deliveries to these Mm. people. Like, oh yeah, if you're gonna do this. And like Alex Weiser from Weiser Farms, he goes, it's like my showroom. I have, I bring everything I grow, and then yeah. if people want a little more or something special, or can you just harvest it at this stage yes. for me? Because I have, yes, I can. Farmers there to say yes, I can do that. So, are you, are you, you're out? Are you out, or are you easing out? I'm out. You are December 29th, okay. Because I was just going to say you need to. I mean, I just met you, but you're still talking in the present tense. Well, I uh, shop at the market. She's, and <laughs> I, she's still there every Wednesday. I come and shop. Am I going to see you Wednesday morning? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, like, I'm not going to be there early. Yeah. I kind of tend to roll in about 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. So how how hard was it for you to make this decision? It was not seen, hard. Really? It wasn't hard at all. I made the decision 18 months before I, my final day. Okay. In this in all June right. of 2016. I and decided. how long did you keep that? 
to yourself? How long before uh, you went public? I didn't go public. I told my boss yeah. um, about a year, a year out. I okay. told my boss I was thinking about doing it. Okay. And uh, that actually, I said, my firm date is going to be December 2018. Okay. So he knew uh, about a year out. And then we had a strategic planning session with the whole farmer's market team yeah. about eight months out. Okay. And at that meeting, I mean, we couldn't do a strategic plan without them knowing that I was not going to be there yes. when this plan was like going to yeah. be taking effect. So I made the announcement then. I made it to the team and I just sort of said, by the way, you know, December. And there was just this sort of like dead silence. Like I don't think anybody, because I'd been there so long, anybody ever thought about, wait, wait, you're leaving? Right. What's the succession plan? Right. This, this, And that was our succession plan. Yeah. Like now things are going to be, there will be a new person in this yeah. position. So. Yeah. Did they bring someone in or did they move someone up or did well, they split the, your job into no, pieces? No, my, my job stayed the same. Yeah. Um, and we did a wide recruitment. Uh -huh. uh, staff did apply, you know, yeah. internal staff. Yeah. Um, but what we, but the person that ultimately got hired was somebody who came from the Hollywood Farmers Market. Okay. Who was also on the LA Food Policy Council. Okay. That extensive food policy. A lot of what I do is I do a lot of networking outside the city with nonprofits like Food Forward, yes. LA Food Policy Council, okay. Farmer Veteran Coalition, yeah. Family Farmed out of Illinois. Yeah. I mean organizations that are that are working on farming issues, food yes. farming issues. This sort of expand like I always talk looking over the parapet of the castle. Yeah. Like looking at the horizon, like what's out there and how can we extend our, our yeah. reach and our you know our relevance to the to the greater world. So so we had someone that had a little bit more of like food policy right. and nonprofit ex experience. So yeah, so she came on board and actually she knew our staff already from yeah. her food policy work. So um, yeah, so now it's what we're now in May and yeah, she's been there are. five months and. I'm a happy retired person, and yeah, right. my hashtag, my hashtag is now not my problem. Is it really? <laughs> not my. It should be. You know, no. I see, you know, issues that you know. It's like you know, we've got a whole team in yeah. place. They're all competent. They're all passionate, yeah. committed. So my my wife and I were the fundraisers at our kids' school in Brooklyn oh. for one year, and mm. when it, and the password on we had created our yeah. own. We didn't want to. We didn't want to do anything that was tied into the New York City public school system. So we created our own Gmail hashtag, account. Oh, no, an email account. Yeah. It was like fundraising, PS, whatever. Okay. But the but when we left, we we uh, changed the password to not our job anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just and with yeah. and there's an auto, there's still to this day an auto reply message That's if so anybody funny. tries to reach out to us because that was. But see, but I, I have to go back to this question I asked you before. There was nothing in your path because you seem so by all accounts so suited to it. Even just hearing you talk about it right now. Mm -hmm. It makes because I had done film production and marketing. My wife had done PR and worked at the TV Food Network. So we've always, like, you know, that job, it was a lot of events where we raised money, but we could do, we put our whole wedding together in an hour, literally. It's fantastic. Yeah. I hope but there was can... nothing in your past that, like, well, could I, have predicted something like this? I, you know, people have a gap year. I took a gap decade after, after uh -huh. I got out of college. Yeah. And I did a lot of traveling and I had a lot of great adventures. And then by the time 10 years was almost up, it's like, I need to do something now that yeah. basically settle down, get married, have kids. And uh, when, you, when you become a parent, when you're a young parent, you are now in a world where everything is like, you write your own rules and yes. you survive by your wits. Yes. So, so I thought, oh, a job where I can do, write my own rules and survive yeah. by my wits? This would be perfect. And that's kind of when this job came along when my oldest daughter was 18 months old. I've been so you developed a lot months. of these skills as you went along. There were no written rules for how to run yeah. a farmer's market when I yeah. started. You know, yeah. And luckily the city of Santa Monica, because it was such a community serving 
serving public serving entity. Yes. All it was was just, you know, make make it the best thing for everybody. And that was my basically my mandate. Was so it? I, I was Sorry. just gonna say I think I think a lot of the success from like a, a farmer who had I had shopped the market before I started farming. Sure. And now being a farmer at the market, I think so much of the success of the market is due to Laura and her personality. And I don't think you know, that, that's something that you're either born with and you're born to be an influencer and have presence about you. And we were or, literally yeah, just talking leader. about this. Or you're, yeah. yeah, or you're not. Yeah. And so much that. of that success of that market is because of who she is as a person yeah. um, and her passion. So, and we should say this goes back to 82, correct? 82? Yes. October 1982. Which also dovetails with, you know, a lot of things that were happening in food, you know, the whole chef and restaurant scene. That hadn't really kicked off yet. I mean, I can, just from my personal anecdotal perspective at the yeah. farmer's market... I noticed chefs, you know, the farmers, everybody started noticing chefs like in the early 90s, mid 90s. Not till then? Not really till then. It really wasn't like What about like the, the Michaels crew? Well, they were right next door, so yeah, they would come. I mean, they, would they, come. they, but I know I, Nancy was early. Nancy Silverton, and I huge props to Nancy Silverton. She was the first major chef who came okay. to the market shop and talked about it. Okay. And then they started kind of following her. And then uh, by 1999, we had our first Chef Appreciation Day. Where okay. We had this little ceremony in the middle of the market. We probably had 12 chefs. Yeah. Who we forced to stop for like one minute to come and pick up their. Now we got to go. We're shopping. So that started. And now today, I'm going to say that we probably. I can't even count. I don't even know who a lot of them who are. They them just are, come yeah. and they chef. And not only that. Now the produce companies yeah. who come and pick up for them. Yeah. So I'm going to say, and we have a we have a preferred parking area on all four ends of the market mm. outside the market, and we issue parking permits, okay. and we have meters, parking meters that are permanently posted with no parking, chefs only. And we give out about 70 permits a year was it for those um, spaces you know what when i think you said something a minute ago like the city just wanted you to make it as good as possible was it because coming from new york right anything that you're going to do in a sp public space mm -hmm. you got to just like gear up for basically enduring so much misery <laughs> yeah. at all the municipal <laughs> buildings is it different out here well the was only it more pleasurable to go about this enterprise that you took on the only pushback we had was from the re the merchant association the merchant retail community on in downtown santa monica okay. but when the santa monica wednesday market opened the Third Street Promenade back then was still called the Third Street Mall. Yes. And it consisted of basically, there was a Woolworths, yeah. there was a J.J. Newberry's, yeah. there were some radio shops, there were some TV yeah. shops, there was a lot of just funky old businesses. And when the farmer's market moved in and we closed Arizona Avenue, a lot of them turned around and said, it's your fault we're not making any money because our customers can't park. So they literally sort of organized a protest, and they one time they tried to park their cars and prevent the farmers from driving in. Wow. But very soon after that, Santa Monica Place, the mall where we're sitting right now, mm. <clears throat> opened, and that was the nail in the coffin of the Third Street Mall as a retail district. Got so it. that kind of just, just died off. Yeah. Santa Monica Place opened up, and then the market just kept continuing to double in volume every yeah, single year for the next there. five years it just took off so you t i need to let you guys go in a minute as promised as agreed <laughs> but uh meredith can you just talk about you know you talked about learning how to become a farmer right yeah. what what were your resources was it books was it um um you know not-for-profit organizations that were out there was it fellow farmers who would almost by definition maybe become your you know you'd become a competitor to yep. how does how did you get your bearings and jump into this a lot of it has just been through research and trial and error 
I mean, mm-hmm. it literally, I feel like every single day I fail multiple times and you learn from it, right? Yeah. And you pick yourself up and you say, okay, well, that's not going to work. So yeah. let's try this. And, you know, one of the things that I think I should have done that I didn't when I first started farming was find a better network of other farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in Bakersfield, in my hometown, there's not a lot of small farmers. Everyone's large scale conventional farming. Um, and so finding somebody that was doing what I was doing wasn't necessarily an option. Got it. Um, but any farmer. This is what we would call commercial farmers. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, anybody that, you know, asked me today, you know, that's the first thing I'll, I tell them, like, call me, contact me. I will prevent you from having those same failures that I had because yeah. I learned them the hard way. And if yeah. I can help somebody else get up off their feet and help to spread the word and educate consumers from my failures, like, yes. I'm more than willing. And and when you start talking to farmers, everyone is like that. Farming community is like that in general. And everybody wants other farmers to succeed. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. So honestly, it's a, it's I mean, it's a very a, supportive. It is it's a very a supportive, supportive. And they don't see each other as threats. No. I mean, there's more than enough business and more than enough customers for all of us. Yeah. Um, and so the more that we help each other and help each other succeed and build each other up, the more that consumers see that. And then they tell their friends and they start posting it on social media and they start talking about it. And then they start demanding the restaurants and, you know, their local grocery stores to start looking at the smaller farmers. And so there's definitely it's a community impact. It definitely takes everyone to be involved in it, mm-hmm. um, but everyone has a voice and, and they have that option. What I'm going to ask last question for both of you. What is Meredith? And I'll start with you first, please. Uh, what is the thing, maybe the biggest surprise for you, however you want to come at it, the biggest surprise for you about farming when you got into it the, or the thing you think people maybe least understand or, or most misunderstand about it? You know, I think, th- I think the, the thing that surprised me the most, and I think that it's the most or the least talked about, is the regulation. Um, you know, like when, when I started farming, I thought, oh, great, I'm going to put some vegetables in the row and I'm going to put water on them and make sure there's not weeds and then I'm going to sell them. But that's really not the way it works. I mean, you have to go through multiple government agencies. You have to go through USDA, CDFA, packing procedures, handling, health permit. Like, And these things affect all stages? All stages. So to grow, to package, to sell. Yep, all of it. There's some kind of hurdle regulatory hurdle it's, at each of those I tell steps. people it's like if you had to go to the DMV twice a week every every week of your life that's what it's like to be a farmer okay. right like we're dealing with so many government agencies and yeah. permitting and and all of these state things. and federal state and federal well yeah. be, be, my job is state and federal okay. like what I do because of the ranching and yes. that um, livestock is has to go through USDA which is a federal um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely something that people don't think about as an obstacle. Everyone talks, everyone talks about, oh, the early hours and the long hours and the, you know, the nature, nature, mother nature and weather. And, and yeah, I, those are all things that you already know before you start farming. Right. Yes. Those but, are things I know as a layperson. But nobody yeah. talks about the local regulation and how to navigate it. And, and in my community, it was when I first started doing what I was doing, they yeah. didn't even know. I yeah. mean, they still don't. I'm, I'm dealing with them now. I'm building out a chicken processing facility at the farm and it took five months for them to be able to get the paperwork and the information from the state and from the county to then be like, okay, now you can finally, uh, you know, put in your permit. Mm. Um, and so there's things like that, that you, you look at as a farmer and you're like, you know, like how many struggles we have on a daily basis just to grow food. And now you are adding another, you know, ridiculous amount of work, frustration, you know, everything where you just want to bang your head up against the wall sometimes and be like, why are you in my way? Just get out of my way. Mm. Right. Laura, same question. So to me, I, you know, I uh, I love talking to farmers. Yeah. And I've been there so long, and I've watched the market grow up. And what I keep hearing, I get some feedback sometimes that people are intimidated by the farmer's market, or they just don't know what to buy, yeah. or they get there and they're just like adrift, and they just don't know which direction to head. And, yeah. I, you know, I just want to 
tell people, you know, just, just start at the first booth and just say hello to a farmer and say, what have you got and what do you recommend and what's good? And I think, and what do you, I do? A lot of farmers will tell you what to do with it. How to cook it, so how then to you prepare look it. Yeah. Yes. This you. makes a great X. Yep. And you say, oh, what are you buying that? What are, what are you yeah. going to do with that? Yes. Are you over here? What, what are you going to get some of that? What, what would you do? And in 100% of the time, they're going to sit there and they're going to tell you yes. what they're doing with it. So I just think it's like, there's a huge variety there it is it's crowded it's busy it's you know frenetic and you just go in there and you just you just establish eye contact with a farmer <laughs> yes or with somebody who's you know I've gone up to people with beautiful bags you know wagons of produce and I've said to them what are you going to do with all that? And then that leads to a conversation, and, and it's yeah. led to invitations. Well, I'm having an opening at yes. the, you know, at yeah. the uh, Museum of Jurassic Technology. Right. Why don't you come on down? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I just made a new friend. You just talk about the produce. That's really the way to overcome your, your initial you know, well, it plays trepidation. To, it, it plays and to everyone's worst stereotypes of themselves and others, right? So, like, <laughs> if you're, like, someone who lives in an urban setting new york la san francisco and someone's coming in from the sticks with their you know what they've grown or raised or whatever i think a lot of people have make this mistaken assumption that there's this huge when you say afraid to talk i think as much they just they they mistakenly think they have to talk in some way other than yeah the way they would normally talk or they need to know something that they or that they, they need don't to know, know something yet. yeah or yeah. they need to demonstrate right. it's like going into a um st- like a you know a, a sound like a stereo mm-hmm. store you know if you don't know anything about all that stuff it's mm-hmm. intimidating it's intimidating well I know I'm sure Meredith fate your face lights up if you get a customer coming up and going what should I get totally yeah I mean that's that's why we do what we do is to be able to help people and show mm-hmm. them like here's what here's what it is and like here are all the different cuts that you can actually yes. get it's not just about ground beef or yes. boneless skin chicken breasts yes. like let me tell you there's a whole other world out there yes um so yeah i mean when, when you get the chance to, to educate somebody and teach them yes. at the end of the day they walk away and you're like yes that is exactly why i do what i do and yep. they'll be back you and they'll be made back. a customer sometimes a friend yeah yeah that's great all right well on that note thank you for your time did i stick the landing let me see you stuck oh the landing. four minutes late you're good Sorry. thank you so you're much good. thank you great thanks. to meet both of you thanks same thank here you. And moving on to the last interview of this show, and also moving on quickly. Things move quickly here at the Friedman House. Caitlin and I, since introducing the last segment, have gone our separate ways. Caitlin uh, had to head off into the city for work. Uh, That's how tight the schedule was this morning. So I, on my own, will introduce Chef Brooke Williamson. A lot of you may know Brooke from Top Chef, but she's been a fixture even at the young age of her mid-30s of the Los Angeles restaurant scene for years. She's worked at a number of prominent restaurants, including Michael's years ago. At restaurant Zach's, she met her husband, who is now her co-chef and business partner, Nick Roberts, who I also met at the Chef Conference. And as I said at the top of the show, Brooke and I were just absolutely wiped out at the end of day one of the conference, excuse me, at the end of the day of the LA Chef Conference, kind of gave each other a look and I said, maybe we should do this another time. Uh, She was very kind. She met me at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, appropriately enough, uh, two days after the conference. And we found a bench looking out on the ocean. And that's where we did the interview. Uh, but Brooke, uh, in addition to uh, Top Chef, or I should say Top Chef is in addition to the rest of her career, uh, she and Nick 
have Hudson House, the triple, and Playa Provisions. I'm sure there'll be more to come in the future. I really enjoyed meeting her. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. And here you go, my chat with Chef Brooke Williamson. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so we are at the, well, we're somewhere between the beach and the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Um, We were both at the Chef Conference the other day. Yes. Our panels were the last panels up. They They, both ran long, right? They both went long. I had to do a book signing right after. I thought maybe you had even left because I didn't didn't realize how long your panel went. Yes. And then I saw, it was like when an airplane arrives late, I saw all these people coming out of that Uh direction. And you and I had, I think we looked at each other and we both knew right away we didn't want to... You were like, I'm done. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then not having met before, we made a plan to do this today. I... I, I felt like it was going to happen. but Yeah, I'm, no, I'm pretty yeah. good at following through yes, with my plans. you never know. You never know. Um, so thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, how did you find, the, you know, that conference existed once before. It was, it was This was the second year. Mm-hmm. This was, I wasn't here last year. I know this was a much bigger sort of iteration of it. Um, the lineup was pretty great. It was great, yeah. Were you there for a good piece of the day? Did you get to take any of it in? Uh, I was there pro- probably the second half of the uh-huh. day. I got to see one full panel, walk around, uh-huh. have a couple of bites of fried chicken. Yes. Um, but no, I mean, like, I think mostly I was there for my panel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how many things like that do you do a year? Do you, are, panels? Are you on are panels, conferences? Like, are you on the, on the circuit? I mean, I'm on a circuit. <laughs> I don't know if I'm on that circuit. I do a lot of um, I do a lot of traveling and events. I don't do a ton of speaking mm-hmm. unless it's accompanied by a demo okay. or uh, or something of that sort. But uh, do you not I've, like it? I'm I don't love speaking in okay. front of crowds, um, and sometimes I'm totally fine with it. Uh, I just kind of never know how I'm going to feel in that moment. Yes. So, um, I don't not do them. I kind of generally say yes to them because I feel like they take me out of my comfort zone and into um, a place where I have to face it, and then that just makes me better. So uh, I, I do enjoy doing panels. Yeah. Um, I like sharing my thoughts. Uh-huh. Um, but I do have a bit of stage fright. You do? I do. That's interesting. And yet you did television. I'm fine with television. You are? Fine it's, with the, it's a live situation? It's the live situation, and um, it kind of doesn't even matter how big the crowd is. Like, I will get just as nervous in front of 15 people as I will in front of a thousand. Interesting. Um, but it does help when I'm doing something with my hands. So if I'm cooking or doing a demo, um, it feels more interactive to me. Right. It's just being responsible for saying certain things at a certain time that makes yeah. me nervous. Yeah. Did you Did you ever do any acting or anything? In- no. I was I was the kid who grew up in L.A. and wanted to do the opposite of acting. Okay. <laughs> My sister wanted to be an Meaning actress. what? Meaning being a kitchen? Yeah. Just kind of not be in front not of camera. Not be in front of people. I, right. I went to high school with actors and actors, actresses' kids and... Um, you know, I grew up in LA surrounded by people who wanted to be actors and yeah. I just wanted to be different. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be behind the scenes. I wanted to do something creative. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really want to be on stage, mm-hmm. uh, but I did find it to be a really kind of fun, creative outlet to do it on TV, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, but the cameras really don't affect me like the actual okay. people do, which is interesting because People forget things, right? But cameras don't. <laughs> so You mean if you make a mistake yeah, in a live situation in front of 200 people, 
Maybe they'll, maybe they'll maybe get mentioned at dinner that night, and then it's exactly. off into they'll the ether. Yeah, perhaps walk away yeah. and say like that was ridiculous. Yeah, um, but they'll forget about it, you know. And but when it's recorded on camera, you, you know the chances of people forgetting about it ever are slim. Yes. Well, I mean that to <laughs> me is why. Like we, I do this whole preamble with my guests, which we did before. We where I'm like, if something gets awkward, I'll cut it out or whatever. Like I want people very comfortable. Right. And I think probably the best shows have a track record of not completely, you know, taking things out. Of, I mean, I, there are shows that do do that, right? right? Take things out of context, pick the lowest common denominator stuff, manipulate things, you know, leave out key moments that led to yeah, something that does that. happen. Yes. So I think it's, a, <laughs> right, it's case by case. Yeah. It's like a trust thing. Yeah. But um, what I was going to say is for me... Like, I love this, what we're doing right now, Mm -hmm. because from the first time I ever went on radio to promote a book, I'd loved, and it was, I say this only because you mentioned the thing about your hands, right? Like, I, like, I did theater in high school and a little bit in college, and, like, I never knew what to do with my hands, you know, or my arms. I always felt like I I needed, like, business, you know, some business, you know, and, um... But when you're just a talk, you know, when you're just a voice coming through a speaker somewhere, doesn't it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter. It's, yeah. I love that. And then I think there are people who are born. I mean, I'm sure some of your colleagues uh, from the show, you know, I mean, I've seen people who are. I was just on a panel with Brian Malarkey. Mm-hmm. And oh. I'm like, God, this guy's just like me. He's, he's like full personality. The hair is perfect. <laughs> so I'm not making fun he's of him. He's ready at any moment. <laughs> In the morning, he had the blazer, the nice jeans, the beautiful shoes, the hair was perfect. We got on stage, he was like, every sentence was like perfectly. Yeah, no, there are certain people who I feel like are really. Like born to it. Born to yeah. it. I don't think that's me. I think I'm, I'm practiced into it. Yeah, and you recognize, I'm assuming, the need for it in today's totally. restaurant I mean, world. What, the entertainment factor? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So, how did you first discover cooking? When you say when you were a kid you wanted to do something different, was it always going to be it that? It was always cooking. Okay. How did um, you, what was the first sort of spark? Was it dining out? Was it people who cooked at home? Was it? Both. Um, my my mom, as a kid, my mom cooked dinner five nights a week. We mm-hmm. sat down for dinner at 6.30 every single night mm-hmm. on, on school nights. And it was a time where there was no TV. There was no music even. Uh, it was a time where we caught up on our days and talked about what was going on. And I really, I think, loved the value, appreciated the value that I saw in that. Yeah. Um, so from a social aspect, that really intrigued me. And I felt like a lot of it was based around being at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of creativity and food, I think I was always, you know, from the moment I figured out how to use shrinky dinks. I don't know if you remember <laughs> shrinky dinks. I know shrinky really dinks. Annoying. I don't know. Other people can Google it. I don't know. Can you can you describe them in less than so 25 like words? These, um, They're plastic, weird. They're pretty clear weird. Clear plastic figurine yeah. sort of things that you, uh, that you would draw on with colored pencils. And then you put them in the toaster or the oven. Yep. And, or toaster oven, which yes. is what we had. And they shrink and harden. And so it's just and harden. Yeah. So it's just a tiny little miniature version of what you just drew, and yes. they, they came to life in a miniature way. So those really, I really loved those. But that was kind of my introduction uh-huh. <laughs> to using an oven. Um, so I knew how to use the oven because I had been using it for shrinky dings. 
But really, I, we had a bunch of fruit trees in our backyard, and, and I kind of experimented with pancakes first at the mm-hmm. age of maybe six or seven. Mm-hmm. And then it just grew from there. It became me going to the supermarket and finding things that I hadn't seen before to experiment mm-hmm. with them. And so it was really from the age of six or seven that I had an interest in food creativity. Okay. And then I kind of just decided to go that direction. Yeah. By the age of maybe 11 or 12, I knew what I was going to do. So when you uh, talk about like create food creativity, right? Did you, um, like, did you start off with a lot of recipes and cookbooks and whatever, or did you just kind of wing it? I mean, I started off with Betty Crocker yep. in a book yep. and Julia Child and Jacques Pepin on TV. Mm-hmm. So I watched a lot of cooking shows instead of cartoons on Saturday and Sunday mm-hmm. mornings. And then I would kind of take what I had seen and go into the kitchen and experiment. That was kind of my week, my weekend activities yeah. were just experimenting with what I had seen. And then I think you get to the point where you feel like you know a dish well enough to take some creative liberty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I was doing that probably by 12 or 13. Were you good at that kind of thing right away? Like, do you feel like you were making smart, creative decisions when you started to sort of stray from... The uh, I mean, I think you know, most the textbook of the time, version. probably not all of the time. No, not, no, probably, no one gets it all the time. Probably, you probably don't get it all the time now. Yeah, there are probably several people who would disagree that I ever got it right, but I felt like in the moment I was getting it yeah. right a lot of the time. And you enjoyed it. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it's it. It's funny, you know, my kids, my daughter plays like four instruments. My son doesn't anymore, but used to play tennis. And I remember taking him out once to hit at the U.S. Open grounds, mm. um, which for anyone listening in New York, 49 weeks a year that's a public park you can go hit the, really? you can go hit on those court, not in Arthur Ashe Stadium yeah. but you can go hit on like Cordelette yeah yeah and I'm it's a tennis cheap. player so oh you are? yeah if, if oh. I, I was a very athletic kid so the only thing that that I did sort of outside of the kitchen as a kid was play tennis really? And did you I play competitively? I mean like on a team? in high school I was yeah captain of my high school tennis team were you? okay <laughs> that's my claim to tennis okay. fame but uh I also had a, a a moment where I decided that I wanted to be the first female uh, major league baseball player. And really? That didn't pan out. Yeah. Nor has it ever for any okay. <laughs> woman. Right. Yet, but um, so. Just, you mean in the? You don't mean in a separate league. You mean no, you wanted to I wanted like to be on the break Dodgers. that? Break that? Did you? <laughs> that was That's good awesome. Enough, but I wanted it. Okay. Yeah. How far did you go with that? Nowhere. It was just a childhood dream. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what I was going to say is I took my son out to the grounds and some USTA person was like, make sure he's just having fun. Right. Right. Is that at that age as a child? Mm-hmm. Right. Because if not, it, you can get turned off quickly. Yeah. So are there any things you I'm just always intrigued by this when you started to kind of, you know, take liberties or even maybe start coming up with your own ideas for dishes or something. Are there any things that stand out for you that you really particularly whether or not you thought it came out great, just that you enjoyed that you thought was fun that you thought had a, a sense of humor or wit to it or that you just per- thought was particularly creative or particularly you dish wise yeah like as a kid no no, no. i mean no i i feel like i was across the board and i was always more interested in learning new things than i was about repeating things okay so yeah no. okay when you uh decide this is what you're going to do your parents were down with that to an extent. Um, like, where was the profession in terms of its regard 
in society <laughs> when you made that decision? It was a profession that very few people made money at. Yep. Uh, it was a profession that very few women entered who um, wanted to be in the savory kitchen, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, the odds were definitely stacked against me, uh, I think, just from, from the get-go. But my parents were always of the frame of mind that that I should do something that makes me happy mm-hmm. rather than something that makes me money. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they had paid a decent amount for my high school education. So I felt like, and I think they felt like, I owed it to them a bit to go to college. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to a year at University of Colorado Boulder mm-hmm. and went to business school. And the moment I was able to get out of that first year, I said to them, I just want to be working. Mm-hmm. And that's actually when I got the job at uh, Phoenix at the Argo. Okay. So you, um, I mean, you just mentioned going into the profession as a woman. Do you feel like that factor in Southern California was mitigated? I asked this. Back be- then? I mean, all- we're talking 20 something years ago. Yeah, but I know I asked because like, I remember trying to ask Nancy Silverton about like the seventies and her telling me she like she never had any she doesn't have horror stories. You know, her whole life was either in Northern California or this area. Right. Right. And other people have told me they felt like you look at like Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger who had a nightmare of a time even getting jobs in the Midwest. Right. You know, and then they come out here and just kinda take off. Like Burst. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, I'm I'm just, I'm asking, like, was your experience different than that? Did I you- don't really know, because I think at the time, I was young and naive, and I didn't look at my gender as something that was, that even had the potential of holding me back. Mm-hmm. I, I used it to motivate me, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, I was very aware that I was only the only female in every kitchen that I was working in. Still at that time. At that time. And in this area. In the in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a powerful mid to late, statement. Mid yeah. to late nineties, I was the at least in the savory kitchen. There yeah. were always women in pastry. Yeah, sure. Uh, but in savory, it was like, you want to work this hot grill? Do you know, little girl, how hot this grill gets? And I was like, I'm in. I'm I'm up for it. I can handle it. And I think that that people's um, Dis, uh, distrust that I could handle a position motivated me to prove that I could. Mm-hmm. And I always could. Mm-hmm. And I always felt so great that I had proved a point afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, there were moments where I felt like potentially people didn't take me seriously because not only was I a woman, but I was really young. Yeah. Um, and did that, did that, I just. I only bring it up because you made that comment in passing about, you know, that that was also a factor in it not probably seeming like the best career move to your family. But, I mean, what's the response? I mean, were you pissed off internally when people said that? And you heard it enough that it was just like, here we go again? Was it just a From nuisance? Who? From cooks who would say to you something like, you know, you sure you can handle this hot grill? You know, not Like, really I would think I that th- would be a really angering thing to hear, especially I mean, I, I the more you heard it. I potentially felt that way. Um, I think I really only gave clout to the people who whom I respected in the kitchen mm-hmm. and whom I knew uh, I wanted to follow yeah. their direction. Yeah. And I never, fortunately, for, the, for that at least first, second year of professional cooking, I had people who really held my hand and wanted to show me the way to properly debone a quail Mm -hmm. and properly make a stock. I hadn't gone to culinary school. Mm -hmm. Actually, Ken Frank was the one who talked me out of culinary school. That's Um, so funny. And 
I had applied to CIA. I got accepted. There are a certain number of hours, restaurant hours, that you had to work before you went. And so that's why yeah. I took that job at the Argyle. Uh, and then Got I never it. left because he was like, why are you leaving? You're doing what you want to be doing yeah. and we'll, we'll help you along. Yeah. So I really had, uh, had people who had faith and I think that it was all about work ethic and, and desire and hunger mm-hmm. that they noticed in who I was as a person. Mm-hmm. I just have to say for anyone who's interested, Ken Frank was on the recent episode we did from Chef's Roll in San Diego and he talks in great detail about his feelings about culinary school. Yeah. And, you know, he was like... You he can still really, feels that way? You could just go get a job. Yeah. He said, and then if you want, you can... He, the way he put it was, you can spend your parents' money and yeah. go do that, but really you could just keep working for people who will I teach you. I also think it's about drive and personal motivation. Mm-hmm. I think um, I, I had so much ambition that I would go home from work and I would read... Um, you know, skill set books on mm-hmm. how to properly use a knife and how to, you know, what a batonet was, what a brunoise was. And I, and I felt like because I hadn't gone to school, I was already behind, mm-hmm. although I wasn't because I was like 18. Yeah. So. Did, did you practice, um, did you practice those things at home? I did. I went like, home would you I buy a bag of potatoes or a bag of onions? I or? didn't practice knife skills as much as I did technique mm-hmm. um, in terms of like actual cooking. Uh, because I felt like I was getting a lot of knife skills technique practice at work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of my job, on, when, you know, when I started, I was in pastry first, and then I went to um, pantry. So I worked at the salad station for a while, and that was a lot of, you know, brunoying of vegetables. Yeah. Um, so that I was kind of getting that practice on the job. Yeah. Did you, how did, uh, would we say you were a jock as a kid? Is that a fair statement? No. Is that overstating it? <laughs> No, I was. I, you were. You like. I was kind of always. You like certain sports. I, I liked certain sports. Okay. Uh, you were athletic. I was athletic. Okay. Um, but I was always kind of a semi girly girl. Okay. So did the athletics affect? How did that affect you in the when you started going into the kitchen? Do you feel like it gave you a leg up? I think in terms of physical strength, um, I always made it a point to stay in shape. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that is often overlooked in the kitchen for lack of time or lack of motivation mm-hmm. or energy. And I think that I always realized that the consistency of exercise um, would really determine how much energy I had at work. Mm-hmm. And so I always paid mind to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that helped me. I don't know. In a disciplined sense, I was always pretty self-disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that that had to do with sports. So what, when do you start to get a sense of kind of what you were going to be about, like on the plate? Like what your, like what Brooks sort of style was? I'm still figuring it out. You still feel it like changes, you're figuring it out? It changes year to year, season to season. Um, do you like that? I do. I love that it's a constantly evolving uh, place that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The art, the culinary art world is constantly changing Mm -hmm. and uh, I feel like in order to keep up with that and stay relevant I need to constantly be learning and changing as well so I don't know I think most people would would put me in the category of California cuisine Mm -hmm. you know having worked for Michael and worked for Ken Michael McCarty yeah yeah I think I told you the other day other than people who were like at Michael's in like 1979 I don't know there must be others but I don't know many people who worked for both of those guys right 
So my foundation was really working with local product. Yeah. And that's the place where I still come from. I have a whole garden at home. Mm -hmm. I come to the farmer's market. And, like, who cares, right? You can order all that stuff at home. But what inspires me in terms of creativity and building a dish is what I look at that's tasting good at that moment. Mm -hmm. So stylistically, I guess that falls into a category. Mm -hmm. uh, But I don't know what that category really means. Okay. Now, can I ask you, you're married to someone who's in the same business as yeah, you are. Yeah, we're co-chefs and yeah. partners. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, I mean, I guess the fact that you took it to that degree is the answer has to be yes. But I generally find that people who are chefs, uh, you know, I think a lot of things that make relationships with chefs difficult kind of just fade away if they're with someone else in the business and especially if they're with another chef right. in terms of understanding the stresses of the job in terms of understanding the hours in terms of understanding yeah, all of that being able to go home and not have to rehash what you went through that day and not have the other person not understand right yeah yeah that's true for you guys yeah i think um it's really it's also the only way we've ever known each other mm-hmm. so it's the only way we've ever communicated uh it's, we've never not worked together since we've been together mm-hmm. uh and i I also feel like there have been moments in our almost 12-year marriage where the restaurants are what held us together mm. um, logistically. But how do you um, mean? Can I? I don't do, want to get no, more personally. Just, you want, but how do you in mean the sense that? That that you know, marriages go through yeah. hard times, great times, um, and I think sometimes people have the option to just walk away. Mm-hmm. And being someone's business partner and being so intertwined in each other's lives, I think. Um, pushes you to a point where you're forced to work things out mm-hmm. and, um, and not, not only for your own sake and our child's sake, um, but for the sake of over a hundred employees. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think that we don't take our relationship lightly mm-hmm. and just like any married couple, we go through ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, but I call it restaurant glue. <laughs> and I think it's honestly makes, the strongest glue that exists. This makes total sense to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I have very good... David Waltuck, who was one half of Chanterelle Restaurant, which had an almost 30-year run. You know, he and his wife, Karen, they're still together. Mm. Uh, they have two kids. Uh, it, it was very difficult when their kids were young because one of them would usually run home before dinner service. and. Mm-hmm. That's them, what you trade you off. You know, and then, yeah, and then, have, and then when, come back. Yeah. You know? Exactly. When our son was, was much younger, we took turns. One of us would go home and put him... To, but we, we never wanted our child to be raised by someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor did we financially have that option. Yeah. So uh, we would take turns going home, and we would have an individual date night with our child every mm-hmm. other night. And, That's great. Um, we had the luxury of, of doing that and being yeah. such a part of our child's upbringing yeah. that... I feel like that was really valuable. Uh huh. Can I ask? He's fifth grade. He's in fifth grade. Yeah. Is he at all interested, or at least enjoy what you guys do? He's like interested. The world that you're he enjoys in? it. I don't know that he has that passion that I had at his age. Yeah. But I think most people don't. No, but I mean, he enjoys like going to restaurants with you guys. And he loves fancy restaurants. Uh huh. <laughs> he loves um, <laughs> being in a. He actually, he's kind of a picky eater, but when he's put into a a position where it would be rude to turn something down. He always yeah. tries it. And I think he likes to be pushed. And so he does like to dine out. He also loves to 
kind of help me out in the kitchen at home. We do a project once a week where a kitchen project once a week where we'll mm-hmm. make something so that he can see the whole process of something yeah. and he gets to choose what it is. Oh, that's great. Um, so he's exposed to it. Um, and like I said, if I had been exposed like he was, I would have reacted differently at his age um, than he does. He's He could kind of take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, but again, he's 11 years old. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe he'll run with it. Maybe he won't. Yeah. I mean, my experience, I have two 14-year-olds, is that they, they just bounce around from stuff to stuff. Yeah. Um, one of my kids takes their pursuits more seriously, mm-hmm. but still usually moves on at right. some point. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. Yeah. I he mean, plays tennis, he plays piano, maybe tomorrow he won't. Yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So how are you, how are you, I, I'm just curious, because I feel like I've been coming out here a bunch the last five, six years. I feel like the city is palpably, from a culinary standpoint, from a restaurant standpoint, Palpably changing. It a feels thousand like percent from yeah. what it was when I first started. Well, f- that for sure. But universe. even in the last ten years, yeah. I feel like how, I'm just wondering from within the industry and as someone who's been here, what do you, what strikes you? If that's not too broad a question. Um, I mean, it doesn't feel that different here at this. I mean, this market to me, anyway, still feels special. Than it than it did here in LA a while back. A while back. No, I think the market has really kind of maintained the same feel. Yeah. Um, and I think the West Side has kind of almost maintained the same That's feel. an interesting distinction. I think that downtown and Koreatown and um, the East Side has really flourished. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are certain areas, and a lot of that I think is dictated on rent and legalities and um, licenses and mm-hmm. stuff. But um, we've kind of chosen to be in these pocket areas that are more neighborhood-oriented, mm-hmm. uh, which has which has been great for us. We kind of love getting to know mm-hmm. our communities. Yep. And, uh, but no, I think as a whole, Los Angeles has really become this, this incredibly inspiring food mecca. Mm-hmm. And especially in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Do you, it's interesting to me that you're saying this in all positive terms. Cause I, I a lot of people I know are starting to really feel the competitive. Well, I mean, Squeeze. labor, I think, yeah. Is, yeah. is an issue, yep. which I, I get. I've Labor's always been an issue yeah. for us because we're in these sort of beach towns that yeah. are, you know, the last bus leaves at nine. And, right. and we have logistical issues uh, be, with labor. But um, I think there is a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and not that there is a shortage of, of hands because I think that because of what, what TV has done the last 10 years, there are a lot of aspiring chefs, Mm -hmm. but I think that there are a limited number of qualified hands Mm -hmm. who understand that you can't start at the top. Um, So labor, I think, is is difficult from that perspective. Um, I don't know. I think, think to me, the being in a city where food is looked at seriously outweighs the negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't trying to be pessimistic. No, I mean, there it's are, just, I, I could mean, go I a different of... direction, but I'm going to choose not to. <laughs> I just had a whole conversation with Jen Harris from the LA Times yesterday about oh, that's the trials and tribula- tribulations of, of running a restaurant in Los Angeles. And there yeah. are a lot, and yeah. I went negative yesterday. Okay. So I'm going to stay positive this today. This the counterbalance. <laughs> right. Um, uh, can you just talk to me for a minute about what it's like co-chefing? It's it's something that's so fascinating to me. 
Um, because I think people who do it's not that it's not as uncommon as it used to be. Right. And I think when it is done well, there is a seamlessness about it. You know, you don't the food doesn't feel like it's done by. No, well, like, we've also cooked together since we were 22 years old, mm-hmm. so we know each other's brains are mm-hmm. each other's creative brains mm-hmm. in and out and we kind of know where to tread lightly and where to be objective and um we r- bounce ideas off of each other mm-hmm. sometimes i don't want to hear his opinion sometimes mm-hmm. i really value his opinion and i think vice versa I so you've we, worked out a whole sort of set of language and, and cues and things and around that not in a very like methodical way just in a very natural organic yeah, way i yeah. think we just know each other so well mm-hmm. that we know where we complement each other and we know mm-hmm. when to leave each other alone yeah so um you know i i in a million years would never I say that right now, but who knows how I would feel yeah. um, at another moment. But I don't see myself partnering at this stage in my career. Sure. I don't see myself partnering with someone else that I don't know as well. Do you as feel I do like by virtue of starting to do this, you know, so young that your sort of individual styles honed it around, you know, on a, on a, along a similar track? Probably. Did yeah. that almost become like the same track? Yeah, I mean, be, stylistically, I think we, we learned together. Yeah, and now, right. probably more I, definitely more I than he has the opportunity or have the opportunity to go to other cities and, and work with other chefs yeah. and see what other people are doing. So creatively, um, I think I've probably taken the reins a little bit more in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. only by fact of, of travels and mm-hmm. and being able to see more than he has yeah. you know he's when i'm in denver or new york or montana or whatever oftentimes he's he's home mm-hmm. taking care of business at mm-hmm. the restaurants and and watching our son yeah which is just as valuable in, oh sure you know, to me so you know we we again we've adjusted over the years and changed our roles mm-hmm. but i think it was out of necessity and we both understood that necessity yeah so can you speak for one minute, just because you've done it? I've had, I've had a lot of people on the show who've done it, the whole Top Chef thing, mm-hmm. chapter in your thing. life thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is its own thing. Yeah. But I think that show in particular, um, I think I first said it when I had Richard Blaze, who was there yesterday, but mm-hmm. Richard Blaze was on this show my first season. And like I, and I'm not just saying it. I think <clears throat> of the competition shows, I think that is actually a show that... Um, like, you know, quote-unquote real chefs tend to win that show. And I remember Richard said to me, it's not just win. Like, real chefs, the top five or six, you know, the five or six last people to still be in the in the mix are right. all generally really good people, you know, really good talent. Yeah. You know? And I, I think, so I think that show is distinct from that standpoint. And I think it's also one of those shows that's not overproduced. You know, mm-hmm. they're not putting words in anybody's mouths. All of those words are spoken. Yeah. And, um, you know... There might be. I always say they can't create a personality for you. Yes. That personality exists. They yeah. might highlight certain aspects of it. Yes. Um, but you I mean think through editing. Through editing, yeah. yeah but I that's think part. Of, I mean, that's it's part of making it entertaining. That's legitimate. And but I don't think they manipulate you for entertain entertainment value. I think they're really sort of true to um, to keeping it about the food and keeping it about the actual talent. And I think that they've gained, they've garnished this sort of respect from chefs 
to understand that they're not going onto this show for a publicity stunt mm -hmm. and that you need to be a certain caliber to be able to compete and you're not going to do it if you know that you don't have that in your wheelhouse. Yeah. So, I mean, not to say there aren't people who make it through casting that shouldn't be there, um, but they I, generally get eliminated. Well, I just had a thought for the first time, which is, um, I mean, to me, it points out one of the weird things about any cooking company. The fact that people get what they get out of the show as competitors mm has -hmm. always been kind of funny to me because the audience can't taste the food. Right. Like, you actually don't know. You're taking, like, Tom and Padma and whoever else's word for whether it's good or not, right? But you haven't tasted it, which is kind of funny. Right. But those shows, unlike, say, the singing shows, there is no audience call-in. So you right. can't kind of take over on a personality because somebody like Tom... Not until it's time to vote for fan favorite, right? That, yes, <laughs> yes. But I mean... Yeah, no. No, but I mean... Competition-wise, yeah. Competition-wise, you know, and Tom, I know... I interviewed Tom this January, and he was adamant that when he first came in, it was like... You know, one of his conditions was, you know, I, we to, pick the winner. Yeah, to a, a almost frustrating extent on occasion in the sense that, like, I felt like I had performed so strongly up until a certain challenge. Yeah. And then there was one challenge that I fumbled on. And it was like, sorry, you're ba you're judged based on this dish. Yeah. And um, and it's frustrating, but also keeps you on your toes and, yeah. and keeps you you know, keeps you in fear, which is something you kind of need <laughs> yes. on that show. Yeah. If, if, you know, if you're not scared, if you're not nervous, it means you don't care enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is sort of a, not to get romantic, I mean, there's sort of a poetic justice to this notion that one bad service can take you down, right? Yeah. Cause I mean, it, I mean that could happen in real life. Serve one bad meal to a critic and yeah. you're done. Yeah. 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 It also ties back to tennis, right? You have a, one bad shot. You can have, or bad match in the <laughs> semis, and the the first five matches of the tournament don't I think matter. It's that way, probably with a lot of things. <laughs> All right. Well, you probably need to get back to the market. Um, uh, it was great to meet you. You too. Thanks for making time for this. Nice Thanks to put for... a face to the to the name on the book. Oh, thank you. Yes, and we talked earlier. You actually, well, accidentally, probably are going to end up buying it three different ways. You know, it's just for lack of having time to read that I haven't gotten through it. But that's why no, I but tried to d download the you audio. You tried to get the audio. You accidentally bought the ebook. Yeah. yeah. Well, it happens. But so I, I appreciate. I appreciate your um, embarrassing degree of support for the book. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy the week. Thanks. Thanks you too. And that's our show for this week. Huge thanks to the LA Chef Conference for having us to Brad Metzger and his team for hosting us, to the Viceroy Hotel for putting me up, uh, to our guests, Meredith Bell, Laura Avery, Michael Chimarusti, Della Gossett, Brooke Williamson, and Brad Metzger, who doubled as host and guest, to Jeet Paul, our engineer. Jeet, thank you for bearing with my schedule this week and editing this show on a Thursday instead of a Tuesday. I'm two days late, and you were very gracious about it. To the rest of the team at Heritage, thank you very much for all your support. As always, to Caitlin for joining me for the intros, and to all of you out there in podcast land. Thank you for listening. If you feel like it, throw us a rating or a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show, and we would be forever grateful. That's it for this week. See you back here next week with a new episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrations happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.